All right. It seems like we've got another screw-up here on Blog Talk Radio. Hello, folks. <laughs> this is Annie, the best hostess you could ever have with the least most is the Radio Chicken D, Annie, along with my guest co-host here, oh, Mama Mia, no Sharia, Vito Esposito, my Guido. You know, I, I don't understand this. I, I just don't understand it. I had the music playing. I hear it in my headset, but you guys are not hearing it. So it's got to be something with Skype. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, I, I don't know what else to do. I just shoot myself. Just simply, simply shoot myself. You can start anyway. saying that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I think I want people to come back to the show. No. <laughs> Anyway, I didn't get to do my commercial because uh, right now, you know, you know, I'm into Patriot Foods, and they're offering $100 off a three-month supply of Patriot Foods. I mean, folks, the world is literally becoming unhinged. Your supply chains are breaking down, and critical shortages are showing up left and right, and people can sense that the other shoe is about to drop. They're ordering emergency food like crazy, which means you should, too. Before you can't get any, I'm talking about the high-quality emergency food that you get from My Patriot Supply. And uh, they're the leading uh, nation. I'm talking straight because Lord teeth are in backwards. (laughs) I can't even say this. They're the nation's leading preparedness company, and they've served millions of American families. Now they want to help you by giving you $100 off their best-selling three-month emergency food kit. The food stays fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage, and they give you the containers. It comes in this great big plastic bucket with a lid on it, uh, so it'll be there when you need it. And all the meals in this food kit average over 2,000 calories per day. So don't wait. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or even easier, just go to my website, click on the My Patriots icon in the upper left-hand corner, and order your supply now. I got mine in, and it's already stocked away. I also got the uh, water filtration, so I've got gallons upon gallons of water for the next several months. So in case my power goes off, I've got my generators, I've got my water supply, I've got my food, I'm ready. And you know what, Vito, this is funny. Um, I had ordered this, uh, my Patriots, several years back, and uh, Yanni and I tried it when we first got it. It's good. It really is. <laughs> Believe it or not, for survival food, it's pretty good tasting. And uh, I went to make my mom dinner, and I was making chicken. And I'm looking at the My Patriot supply that I had from a few years ago, and I've been slowly using it up. And there sitting in front of me is creamy chicken rice. And I made that, and she liked it. So if okay. Mama likes it, <laughs> if Mama likes it, it's good. Anyway, you we got to it's prison food. No, it's not prison food. <laughs> anyway, we got ourselves a bang-up show today coming on. Um, as if I can even get my video screens to work right. Uh, we have, starting off the show, James Kitfield, who was supposed to be on last week. And he wrote a great book, and it's really, it's riveting. In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then we're going to have former United States Ambassador Stanley Escudero. Uh, he, boy, have we got so much to talk to him about. 
And then Kathleen Marquette, uh, she's the VP to the American Policy, Policy Center. Um, we had Tom DeWeese on a few weeks back, and she's his right-hand gal. And someone else who should have been on here last week did not show up, but he will be showing up today, uh, Lieutenant Colonel James J. Carafano with the Heritage Foundation. He's the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Coleman Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and the E.W. Richardson Fellow of Heritage Foundation. Imagine, I said that all in one breath. Woo. Yes, you did. Congratulations. Oh, give your hand there. <laughs> oh, man. I want to welcome everyone that's here listening on Blog Talk Radio. We're also up on Facebook and YouTube also. But, you know, you know, we start off each and every show with the dedication to a fallen hero or heroes. And today's dedication is going out to the fallen law enforcement officers who succumbed to the COVID virus in the line of duty between March 1st and May 30th of this year. And let me get that frame up here. And we start off with Correction Officer 3rd. Tracy Adams, with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institution Division out of Texas. Her end of watch was Saturday, March 6th of this year. We then have Sergeant Barry Edwin Henderson of the Polk County Sheriff's Office in Georgia. His end of watch was Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. Officer Crispin San Juan San Jose, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Office of Field Operations. End of watch, Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. Sergeant LaShonda Owens, Northampton County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. End of watch, Thursday, March 18th, 2021. Chief of Police, Fred Allen Posovitz, Clinton Township Police Department, Michigan. End of watch, Monday, March 22nd, 2021. Sergeant Shane Owens, Broward County Sheriff's Office, Florida. End of watch, March 27th, 2021. Correction Officer Luis Arturo Hernandez, Sr., Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institution Division, Texas, March 31st, 2021. Deputy Sheriff Joseph Brandon Gore, Brunswick County Sheriff's Office, North Carolina. End of watch, Saturday, April 3rd, 2021. Deputy Sheriff Carlos Antonio Hernandez, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, Florida. End of watch, Sunday, April 11th, 2021. Border Patrol Agent Christopher Shane Simpkins, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, Border Patrol U.S. End of watch, Monday, April 12th, 2021. Corrections Officer Jimmy Garcia, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correction Institution Division. End of watch, Thursday, April 15th, 
2021. Deputy Sheriff Alexander Gortz, Harris County Sheriff's Office, Texas. End of watch, Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. Lieutenant Adam Dale Wisnett, Florida Division of Alcoholics, Beverages, and Tobacco. End of watch, Tuesday, April 27th of 2021. These 19 men and women, law enforcement officers, gave their lives in the line of duty and succumbed to the COVID virus. We dedicate this show to them, all that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate to them the men and women that served in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our marvelous future. We dedicate this song by Todd Allen Harrington to each and every one. May God bless them. My name is America, Todd Allen Harrington. Okay. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend
My name is America. And you're back. Oh, no, we're back. <laughs> we're back. <laughs> you're, you're listening we're to back. Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHRM Media, up on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, uh, half a dozen other places. I don't even remember where the heck we are anymore. Oh, yeah, uh, I was supposed to mention Global en- Enlightenment Radio. Um, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern-sense.com. And I'm the wackiest hostess today as possible because I've got a fellow paisano here, Vito Esposito of Global Patriot Radio, joining me as co-host because Curtis is playing hooky. Vito, give me some sanity here, please. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the right one to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am crazy about your show, so there you go. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fine. We'll, we'll handle that. We'll, we'll take that. Uh, you want to hear something really nuts? I, I had to pull this article up. This was up on Judicial Watch, and I loved I loved Tom Fitton. This was titled "U.S. Funds Project to Boost Racial, Ethnic, Gender Diversity in Science at a Private Woman's College." Now, I thought science was about facts, about actual <laughs> data and facts. What the hell does it have to do with racial, ethnic? and gender diversity. You've got to Nothing. be able to add and subtract, divide. You have to be able to calculate the formulas. You have to actually run a test to find what the false po- is, what the positive is. You actually have to work with real data and real facts. So what does gender diversity have to do with science? It's, it's this Marxist movement. You know, the Marxist movement is, is, is infecting every aspect of life, every, every education method that's out there. I mean, to, to invoke it in science, which is supposed to be based in facts, um, you know, it's just more of the Marxist movement is trying to absolutely tear down the, the very fabric of America and, and, and really to, what would you say, to a, 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 a globalist yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, tear down the the constitutional republic for one. I mean, it, it's just it's it's incredible how quickly they're doing this. How quickly it's being done. The rapid movement since January twentieth of two thousand twenty one to to invoke all of these these this this Marxism and and communism. It's just it's it's frankly it's un-American, in my opinion. Well. A government agency gave a professor hundreds of thousands of dollars to study white supremacy and racial injustice in U.S. landmarks. And it's oh giving a small Wisconsin liberal arts college half a million dollars to boost, quote, racial slash ethnic and gender diversity in science fields and to, quote, oh. broaden participation of the underrepresented minorities. Well, you know, what? if we if we had a public school system that actually taught our kids and we were able to graduate them at, say, a 90% rate, you may find qualified people to enter the field of sciences of all races, all genders, all 72 flavors of the month of whatever it is today. But we can't even get, what is it, uh, 45% of the kids in California, especially among blacks, are not even able to graduate high school to read and write. 
What does that say about <laughs> our education system? It's, it's not about, yeah, it's not about gender diversity or racial and ethnic diversity. It's about the quality of education. If you gave each and every kid the same quality education, they will all have an equal opportunity to enter any field they choose. But no, 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 we have to make this a social justice issue. I, I, it's really... It empowers those. Look at the empowerment that it does. It empowers the left in order to dictate policy and to make a victim out of people that really aren't victims, and, and then to separate society. They have segmented society, but that is the way of Saul Alinsky. That is the Cloward and Piven way. That is the way to, to divide America, and that's the idea now is divide America, conquer it, and then scrap the U- U.S. Constitution. I mean, it, it's, it's absolute insanity. What we're seeing in the education system today, you know, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, that, was, that worked pretty well for, for 100 years. But, you know, what changed? Oh, well, you, you're starting to empower people, and you know, that, that was the reason why Trump was ousted so quickly. He was empowering the individuals, and, and, and now you have to go with this garbage of, of gender identity and, and uh, you know, invoking gender equality in, in science. What? What are you talking about? Where, where does that even come from? <laughs> oh, man. It's about as important as climate change. So somehow they're going to tie this in with climate change. You know, that's the other shoe that's going to get ready to be dropped. You know, ever since Biden became president, every time he talks, he was at the oh. UN just yesterday, climate change. Yes. Yes. A, a, a global globalism. They're pushing globalism. No. Yep. Why don't we push American exceptionalism? Everyone else should be emulating us, not us emulating the worst nations on the world. You know. Oh yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have gender equality for these women in Afghanistan. How's that working out <laughs> right now? Not too good. <laughs> Not too yeah, good. Yeah, not too good. You know, oh, yeah. um, um, I gave them the right to drive, but they still have to wear burgers. Yeah, cover their face, cover their bodies. Correct. Yep. That's some equality. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable. I'm shaking my head. I'm like, the world is spinning. Let me get off right now because it just it's spinning a little too fast. I'm getting dizzy from all the crap they're pulling <laughs> on us. And it's coming fast and furious, pun intended. I mean, things become so important now that they're all bowing at the altar of Fauci. Did you hear, not only did The Guardian last week declare him the sexiest man alive. My God, the guy's an old wrinkled prude. (laughs) Sexiest man alive? He poses for this photo shoot that I, I would be embarrassed some of the stuff they had him posing. I couldn't figure out half the stuff he was posing around. But now he's writing a biography, and they're going to make a movie about him. Why? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. The... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> they have a movie in the works dealing with the life of Fauci. I, if, if anything wants to make you bark, a barf, I mean, I, I please... Just please do not show him in a Speedo. 
I can't handle that. That's going to go a little too far. <laughs> Just the thought of that, I want to burn my eyes out. For a guy with a checkered past, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy's almost ninety years old. He is the highest-paid employee of our federal government. His pay yeah. surpasses the president of the United States. Will someone please explain that to me? Yeah, I, I mean, we've allowed this to happen. Oh yeah, you know. Oh yeah. We we have we have, and oh by the way, um, Biden was lecturing us earlier today about paying your fair share in taxes. Oh, uh, guess what? He owes more than half a million dollars in back taxes. That's really? why the Chinese were trying to send ten percent over to the big guy to help him pay his back <laughs> taxes. The president of the United States owes over half a million dollars in back taxes. Now, heaven forbid it would have been Donald Trump. You would have been hearing them scream, impeach, 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 impeach. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't paying his fair share. Didn't they try that? Yeah, didn't they try that with him? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) You know, isn't it amazing how Biden has, has resurrected when he says America's back? America's back to the same old progressive slogans and making America mediocre again, you know, fair share. All, it's all we hear from this guy is about paying your fair share. In the meantime, what happened during President Trump's uh, term in office, how, how he resurrected economic growth and individual, uh, you know, and, and prosperity and by cutting taxes and, and leveling the playing field for everybody uh, with regards to the tax code. And then this Yahoo gets in there and he starts spewing the same old tired, failed, uh, progressive uh, policies of the past, including, you know, pay your fair share. Well, what's, what's even going to happen, what's even worse, is that we're going to come back around now to shortages in the grocery store. We're already talking about toilet paper and paper towels. There are ships off the coast of California that are not allowed to dock, and I haven't heard why. Why are these ships not allowed to dock? We've got... I- I, I read that there was uh, they were they they didn't have enough uh, people to unload the the um, they had an issue of the docks were full and they didn't have um, enough people to unload the, uh, the the ships. That's what I read. Now, I don't know if that was true or not. How many people are we paying to stay home? Exactly. Get them off their, their Archie Bunker couches. Get their butts over there to the docks and get them to, to unload. Police. Or is this a ploy by the unions, the the, uh, dock workers, the stevedores, to uh, up their benefits and up their pay? Good question. Right. Could be a union move to say, no, you're not going to go to work today. Now, I love Sasquatch. He posted in here in the chat room that Al Sharpton was down in Del Rio, Texas. And, oh, my goodness, I thought my mom was going to fall out of her Archie Bunker chair laughing. The right Reverend Al 
was heckled and booed and catcalled <laughs> when he went down to Del Rio, Texas. This is, we, we don't want you here. Go home. Go home. And every time I see that man, I, I just have to close my eyes and remember that one day I saw him bounce off the ground. He he <laughs> decided to join in. Uh, there was a, a, a Muslim mosque that was having an anti-drug march. Uh, trust me, these were moderate Muslims. Uh, believe it or not, some of them do exist. But they were doing a law and order anti-drug march. And the right Reverend Al decided to get in on the game. And they had erected these bleachers in Brooklyn along Eastern Parkway. And before anyone else got up there, Right Reverend Al and his cadre marched up to the top row of the bleachers to see what was the best advantage they could have, what, what, what was the best place for people to see his fat butt. At that time, he weighed two tons. Well, they didn't anchor the bleachers properly, tipped. And, of course, Right Reverend Al goes from the top row, hits the, the pavement, and bounces. <laughs> Literally, he bounced. No one was hurt, thankfully. But here I am in uniform, trying not to laugh my butt off. And all, every time I see him now, as skinny as he is, I just have to close my eyes, see him in that velvet tracksuit bouncing on the roadway. Oh, what a sight. Oh, my gosh. That's beautiful. Oh. But the, the funny thing was is that as, as it was tipping and it was going back and he realized he was going to fall, he started waving his arms as if he was trying to flap them to fly. <laughs> so you've got the picture. Got yeah, the picture. I got the picture. <laughs> you know, well, Vito, I'm going to have you take over for a few minutes because I've got to call our guest in. So I've got to switch lines and call our guest in. And you take it. You, you got it. You got the road. All right. Well, you know, we'll, we'll just continue on that thread about what happened at the border. And Big was really good with uh, with bringing that that point up. Um, it's, isn't it ironic that? You had um, Al Sharpton coming out of the woodwork, the, the race baiter, and you had um, all of a sudden also emerging is, is Waters, Maxine Waters, um, who've been silent. They've been silent with regards to 13 dead U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan because of a, uh, of a Biden inept, inept uh, exit strategy. And then you have uh, 10 civilians killed in a drone strike, and they were silent. Uh, that would be they, meaning Sharpton and, and Maxine Waters. But now at the border with illegal aliens who are crossing the border, U.S. border illegally, and border agents doing their job and trying to apprehend and keep people from, keep illegals from crossing the border, all of a sudden they're outraged, and they're, they're trying to make this into a, a racial issue. And uh, all, the, all border agents were doing were doing their job. That's it. I mean, you know. Yeah, hi, it's uh, Ann Bellas with Southern Sense Talk Radio. I'll put you on hold here. So here you have the uh, here you have the issue with uh, with the hypocrites in in Congress, and of course the the race baiting uh, Al Sharpton, who's trying to take advantage of it, and it's pretty sad. and speaking of Bigfoot, you can go to bigfootsplace.blogspot.com. Great blog spot. I was reading some stories with regards to National Review, President Biden's failure at Del Rio, uh, Texas. Um, interesting story there. So, Annie, you're back. Uh, I am now after I unmuted myself. I, forgot, I keep on forgetting <laughs> to hit the, the mixer board. Unmute, unmute. 
Oh, man. Well, let's, let's bring in our guest who stood me up last week, and this lady doesn't like it when a gentleman stands her up on a date. Anyway, welcome aboard uh, uh, journalist and author James Kitfield. Good afternoon, James. How are you today? I'm doing fine, and I'm sorry about that mix-up last week, but I'm glad you're having me on. Well, you're not the only one that stood me up last week. I got a, a fellow paisano that I'm going to give a hard time to towards the end of the show. So, <laughs> it was just one of those days. But you're in my crosshairs right now. Um, you have a great book out, and I'm going to try to say the name of it without messing up the whole thing. I've got my teeth in backwards today. A great book that's called In the Company of Heroes, The Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients from America's Longest Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it was a very inspiring book. And some of it, I have, how many pages? 28 pages of notes that I made from just reading your book. And that's how much I enjoyed it. Uh, what, what inspired you to do this book? And why now? Well, I had covered these wars extensively as a national security correspondent for a magazine called National Journal, which kind of covers uh, the wars from a strategic 30,000-foot uh, point of view. But I had always been so impressed by the young service members that I met when I was covering the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq who were really on the tip of the spear uh, and whose lives were really affected by all those strategic decisions. So at some point I wanted to tell their stories, and um, I got my opportunity when – the Navy Department reached out and offered me an interview with the most recent, at that time, Medal of Honor recipient was a Navy SEAL named Britt Slavinsky. And I found his story just so compelling and dramatic and heartbreaking, but in the end also inspiring that I, that I wanted to tell more of these stories. Well, you know, you, you also had some interesting little notes. Like Most of the troops now had volunteered after September 11th, and they're not coming from Wall Street. These are the everyday Tom, Dick, Harry, James, uh, coming from the heartland of America. And found that uh, out of 304 general officers in the military, they had 180 children serving in, in uniform. Um, by contrast, 535 members of Congress, fewer than a dozen, have their children in uniform. And out of our all-volunteer army, as I said, they come out of the heartland of America, but they're disproportionately um, African-American, where I think it was, what, like 17% of the Army is African-American compared to 13% of our society. A large number of these men and women are taking the pathway to the military service rather than going into civilian service. Right. So, the all so that I, I have covered the all-volunteer military for many years, wrote about it extensively, the creation of it in 1973 in my first book, Prodigal Soldiers. And so at, over years, as self-selected, these volunteers, um, as you mentioned, come disproportionately from working-class families, I would say, not from the elite, not from Wall Street head fund uh, you know, managers or, or Congress, uh, the children of congressmen and congresswomen, but rather – the sons and daughters mostly of teachers and firemen and, and as you mentioned, also of, of, of uh, soldiers themselves. So it can be like a family business to some degree. A lot of these individuals uh, have, have their parents have served as well. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, you know, sociological experiment with the all-volunteer force. And, you know, one of the things about the all-volunteer force 
that is really germane to these conflicts is because it's a very small force, uh, we were forced to send these service members back to the combat deployment after combat deployment after combat deployment, which was very hard on their families, uh, increases their chances of having to deal with post-traumatic stress issues. So they bore an, un, uh, an unusual amount of the burden of America's longest wars, and I wanted to, to give them a shout-out for that because there is a reason why the generals who lead them call them the America's new greatest generation. I, I truly believe they are. Well, uh, James, I should have introduced you to my guest co-host today, Vito Esposito. He has he hosts his own show on uh, Global Patriot Radio. Um, so, Vito, feel free to jump in whenever you want. Uh, what struck okay. Hi, me James. is uh, what struck me is the Good amazing stories. But the, the youngest Medal of Honor recipient, a Marine Corps Corporal William Kyle Carpenter, and. The, the wisdom of this young man and the courage of this young man uh, struck me as absolutely stunning. Now, he's undergone over 40 surgeries to recover from his bold move in saving another Marine's life. Uh, but he took time from the Medal of Honor Society festivals uh, to um, address a school. And what he said at that young school really struck me powerfully. Uh, he had said he surrendered long ago to God. And then his quote is, it took a life-changing event to get me to truly appreciate the precious and amazing life I have been blessed with. Please take it from me. Enjoy every day to the fullest. Don't take life too seriously. Always try and make it count. Appreciate the small and simple things. Be kind and help others. Let the ones you love know you love them. And when things get hard, Trust there is a bigger plan and that you will be stronger for it. From such a young man, such words of wisdom. Yeah, I was totally struck by Kyle Carpenter's, uh, you know, story. He, you know, he, let, he was deployed in Afghanistan on top of a, a roof doing overwatch for his unit. Grenade lands on top of the rooftop. And there's two, two of them. He, he leaps on top of the grenade to... Uh, shelter his buddy from the blast and it's just remarkable that he even survived he did survive but as you said was just terribly terribly injured and and it was reflective a lot of the courage reflected in this book takes place in, off the battlefield and that's certainly the case in his example where he went as you said through 40 surgeries just excruciating uh rehabilitation and yet instead of letting the experience embitter him he comes out as this sort of warrior philosopher that really has become a, a, an amazing self-help, uh, you know, speaker, and just just has ma- made this a sort of positive in his life, if you can believe it. And um, I just found his story just so inspiring. He's a, he's a and he's an amazing young man, and uh, everyone should read his story. It's just it makes you proud to be an American. And they are very very amazing stories. And once I picked the book up, I just could not put it down. And I'm telling you, folks, uh, there is a link on the show page that if you click on it. You can go to Amazon and get his book, which is also available on Kindle, I believe. Um, there's also what struck me is how sometimes you, you don't think of the services as intermingling often, uh, but occasionally they do. And then there was the battle for Roberts Ridge, which in uh, uh, um, oh good lord, just a major brain fart. Forgive me. Uh, Navy Senior Chief Seal uh, Britt Kate Sobolinski and Air Force Technical Sergeant John A. Chapman. Tell us about these two and how they're, they interwove. 
Yeah, so this was the this was the uh, story that sort of compelled me to write this book, and it was uh, so. Britt Slabinski is in uh, charge of a Navy SEAL team, Overwatch uh, team, that is in early 2002 it was the first big battle where the Al Qaeda and Taliban fighters stood their ground and fought. Uh, it was a bloody battle, and they were being inserted on top of this mountain at night. Uh, a snowy mountain is in the middle of the winter uh, to be, provide Overwatch, and their helicopter was ambushed on top of the mountain barely escaped the ambush zone and one of his one of their fellow seals um seal roberts uh falls out of the of the helicopter helicopter then crash lands a few miles away they eventually make it back to base and they have to make this really you know decision to either go back up on the mountain what would be a suicide mission to try to retrieve their comrade or leave them to the tender mercies of al-qaeda and to a man they said okay we're going back up to get our guy even though they, they understood it was probably, you know, a death sentence on them to try to do that. So they, they go back up on top of the mountain. Indeed, they are ambushed again. They have to fight uphill through snow drifts against entrenched machine gun uh, nests. Uh, Air Force uh, combat controller who's attached to their team is shot and presumed dead. Another Navy SEAL is shot and loses his, loses his leg from that wound. So they basically have to retreat off that mountainside without having uh, found Roberts. And it turns out that John Chapman wasn't dead, and a drone picks him up 12 minutes later and regains consciousness. He fights bravely by himself for another 15, 20 minutes, so his ammo is almost exhausted. Quick reaction force helicopter comes in, uh, and he exposes himself to enemy fire to try to lay down cover for that quick reaction force helicopter, which is also shot down with the loss of life. So it was just, and that was one of the rare battles where two Medal of Honors were given to recipients, both uh, Fritz Slabinski and Air Force Combat Controller John Chapman. It was just, just a heart-rending, tragic, but just an amazing story of courage and bravery and selfless service. Every moment, they, they had so many decision points where they could have done the easy thing, they could have done the safer thing, and they did the hard thing um, to, to keep faith that you leave no man behind. And I, I just found it to be an amazing story. Yeah, because what was remarkable, you know, Slabinski you know, shattered over the din of the rotors you wrote, eyes on me, eyes on me. It was no time for debate. They just, they just did it. No question. Right. And it makes a really interesting point. That I'm glad you brought that up because these stories and these Medal of Honor recipients will tell you, I take this burden of, of wearing this because it, it does remind them of the worst day of their lives. They lost, they lost brothers in arms. Uh, some of them lost limbs. Um, and, but they do it because they want, to bring, they want to bring attention to how heroic their teammates were. And so the, the heroism that comes through in these stories is not just the recipient. It's this entire team that goes, I mean, they all have each other's backs, and they go through some of the most horrific combat of these wars, and they stay true to each other. And I think that is just what's really so inspiring about these stories. Well, what was also inspiring is his his father, the parents of these men and women, um, their reaction, because uh, he sent a letter to the squadron, um, and he said, we may look at what John did and say he is a hero, but then we are not one of his team or the other teams that go in where angels w- wouldn't tread. That is That is powerful. Right. Yes. So, and and yeah, that was John Chapman's father writing to his unit to to at, at a at a medal ceremony, 
Um, and again, a lot of the courage displayed in this, these stories takes place off the battlefield. And in many cases, and I talked to some of these Gold Star families, you know, it's the courage to try to pick up their, their lives after losing a cherished loved one. Um, in the case of John Chapman, uh, you know, it comes through in everything he said in that letter. Um, but, but they do it, and, they, and many of them talk to me because, um, they, again, they want their stories to be told. They want the people to understand what extraordinary individuals um, their, their sons were. So, yeah, a lot of the courage in this book takes place off the battlefield, and, and including these Gold Star families are amazing. Yeah, I, like I said, I got 28 pages of notes and only half an hour to, to talk with you about them because the, the book is so, so fascinating. And um, there was one medal recipient, last name was Smith. I forget what his, oh, I'm trying to look through my notes uh, here. Paul Smith. Oh, here we go. Uh, uh, yeah, Army Sergeant First Class Paul R. Smith. And after he did his his heroism, Later on, they found he wrote a last letter home. It was never mailed, but they found it. And he turned around and told his parents how proud he was of the privilege to be given 25 of the finest Americans we call soldiers to lead into war. And then he made a pledge to put their welfare first, that he would honor with his life. He was prepared, Smith wrote, to give all that I am to ensure that all my boys make it home. Wow, I would be proud to serve under him. Oh, absolutely. He's a he's a prime example of while the, the non-commissioned corps in the army is considered the backbone of the army, and, and it, it comes through very clearly in these stories. They don't tend to be. There's a, there's a few uh, officers, but a lot of these are just non-commissioned officers who, um, who who are the guys at the tip of the spear who who, who are in charge of, of protecting their their team. And in Paul Smith's case. Um, he, you know, he was, he was in the battle uh, in, during the Iraq invasion. It was a critical battle for the Baghdad airport. I was actually right behind him as an embedded reporter. And, um, you know, they were about to be flanked by the Republican Guard, and Paul Smith just wouldn't let it happen. He manned a, a disabled uh, armored personnel carrier and, and manned its 50-caliber machine gun and kept the, kept the Iraqi Republican Guard at bay for long enough for, for him to be reinforced and to hold the flanks. If they had been flanked, they could have they could have encircled the whole unit that was attacking the airport and, and wiped them out. So he's a he's an amazing he's an amazing story. Just a just a like I said a prime example of why the non commissioned officers corps really considered the backbone of the U.S. Army. But we also have to remember the family members because something else Smith did he found out that um, one of the wives of his soldiers had surgery and they weren't able to provide presents and a meal for their children for Christmas. So he and his wife gathered up all the food from their Christmas party and brought it over. And, you know, some of the things that, 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 that the spouses will do to help their military. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And, and that gets to why the, the NCO Corps is considered so critical is, you know, there's a kind of a, a Hollywood version of the drill sergeant in the NCO where he's, you know, bluster and screaming in your face. But these people are promoted because they have shown that they care more for their troops than they care for themselves. And that is really what the Army, what the Marine Corps, what all the services are looking for, is someone uh, who puts the welfare of their troops and their Marines before their own welfare. And that, and that, is, the, the, that is sort of the secret sauce of the U.S. military. 
And, uh, you know, Paul Smith is a, is a great example of that, that he, you know, he, he, he took care of his troops even before the war. He was, uh, he took it on himself to be their protector and, you know, in, in, in war and in peace. And, uh, and when it came to war, he was absolutely heroic in protecting his men. Yeah. The, it, the stories are absolutely unbelievable what these men uh, have gone through. Uh, but, I have to tell you, I was married to a Marine. I was married to a, a gunny. Um, so I, I know the Marine Corps very, very well. As a matter of fact, I live in the heart of the Tri-Command, not too far from Paris Island or the Marine Corps Air Station. And when I hear about the Marines, it's like a little little lump goes in my heart with pride. Um, but there was also Marine Corps uh, Corporal Jason L. Dunham, and he actually had a naval vessel named after him. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, that's that's true. He was another he was another um, case where uh, you know a young kid, kind of troubled in high school, was kind of directionless, and just found his calling in the Marine Corps. And as his uh, mother, as I recollect, said, you know, they, they turned my boy into a man. They took the, the you know the, the, the diamond that was unpolished and polished him into the man he would become. And, uh, you know, he, he had a choice. He was, he was in a Humvee manning the, uh, the, the machine gun on top of the Humvee. They were in, a, in Iraq, and someone drops a, a grenade through the Humvee. At that point, his, his, you know, the only, the only thing he could have gotten out the top of the Humvee because he was standing up in the turret, but the rest of them couldn't. And so instead of, instead of escaping and saving his own life, he falls on the traps the grenade against the, uh, against the blast wall of the Humvee and saves every other person in the Humvee except for himself. Unfortunately, he, he died in the, uh, he was mortally wounded by that act of absolute selflessness. And that's another example of just how amazing these people were when they, when it comes to this brush with eternity, when they could save themselves or, or, or try to save their comrades, these people decided to save their comrades at the, at the, at the forfeit of their own lives. And it's just, just an amazing, an amazing thing to do. Oh, well, in his memory, his wife and daughter uh, sponsored, they served as a sponsor, maid of honor, to the USS Jason Dunham, a U.S. Navy destroyer. How many enlisted men have Navy ships ever been made, named after? I can't remember very many. No, it's very, it's very rare. And it's because he's the Medal of Honor recipient. So, you know, the Medal of Honor is the, the country's highest award for valor. Um, so, Everyone uh, understands that these are extraordinary individuals. In, in this case, and in many others, have, have given their lives for their fellow um, Marines. And, and so, the Navy wants to honor because that's the example they want to set. He is a perfect example of the ethos of the Marine Corps, which is to um, look first to, you know, look cover the back of your brothers in arms, think first of them and not of yourself. And he's he exemplifies that. Well, you know, there's also survivor guilt because in the Dunham story, you tell about his friend, Jason Saunders, who was so upset that he, didn't, he felt he didn't do enough to save Jason's life. But there really was nothing for him to do. He, but they, they feel guilty. And, and that really tore my heart. Oh, yours and mine as well. And, uh, you know, I, this, that survivor's guilt is so real all of these uh, Medal of Honor recipients who have survived um, have, have gone through it and talked to me about it, the ones I interviewed, uh, one of which was Captain uh, Florent Groberg. 
and he, you know, he 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 was a personal head of the personal security detail for for a colonel. Um, similarly attacked by a suicide bomber, he he bomb rushes a suicide bomber and covers them so he can protect his his unit from the blast. He's also grievously wounded and almost goes out of his mind with survivor's guilt. But um, you know, finds he, he's he's in uh, in that case, I believe it was Walter Reed. And another another soldier who was grievously wounded and lost, I think, three legs, I mean, three limbs, uh, comes into his room and says, you know, you've got something to live for, but you've got to you've got to refine your warrior spirit. So these guys, even in their even in their worst moments and in their uh, in this excruciating period of, of rehabilitation for some of them, are still looking out for each other, still have each other's backs, and that that to me was what was so inspiring about these stories. Um, but the survivors of guilt. I mean, to almost a person, the Medal of Honor recipients have dealt with that, have dealt with post-traumatic stress issues, and they've been very vocal about that because they understood that they're looked to as the bravest of the brave. And if they can admit to having issues with post-traumatic stress and mental counseling, needing mental, mental counseling, they think it will remove the stigma for other combat veterans who are struggling with that and make it more likely that they'll reach out for help. So they are very articulate and, and very public about their own struggles. And I think I find that to be also inspiring. Yeah, we've had several different groups on that deal with the PTSD and other things uh, with the military as they come home. And it, it's really got to be gut-wrenching when you see what just happened in Afghanistan. And I, I was watching that, and I, the moment it was happening, I'm going, no, 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 they're really not going to do this. They're not going to do this. They're not going to pull the troops out without getting out the civilian workers, uh, the aid workers, uh, all the diplomats out first, and then destroy any and every piece of equipment. I mean, when we left Iraq, one of the generals had said, wait a minute, there's a cooler with an American flag over there. Grab it. You're not leaving anything behind, not a single thing. But this is not what we did in Afghanistan. It, it was completely, as my friend um, Mike Cutler says, it was bass backwards. It was, it was the, yeah. the dumbest move I have ever seen. And we still have Americans behind the lines. Yeah, so the the way that Af- the, uh, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan is a gut punch to everyone who served there. There's just no there's no shading that fact. Um, you know they have expended blood, sweat, tears, and some infrequently, you know the lives of their fellow brothers in arms. So to see the Taliban sweep back through is just excruciating for them. And I and I, uh, I feel for um, anyone who served over there and, and, and having to witness that. Um, you know there's a, there's a lot of there's a host of issues involved in what you just said, but I will just say. One thing I'm asked is they see this and they go, well, you know, was my service in vain? And my comment to that is absolutely it was not in vain. I was a national security advisor, I mean, a correspondent on 9-11 in Washington, spent the next few years just going to school on al-Qaeda and on, on these wars. And not one counterterrorism person, expert I talked to didn't think we would be hit by successive 9-11s in the years to come. They thought it was inevitable. And the only reason we spent two decades without being hit by another 9-11 was because we sent these brave service members over to fight the terrorist organizations where they, where they lived, and they kept pressure. They decimated al-Qaeda in, in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. They decimated al-Qaeda in Iraq and Iraq. They decimated, after that, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. So 
that was the reason we have, it's not because these people have stopped trying to attack us. It's because we have kept constant pressure on them, had them looking over their shoulders. Uh, and, and, and in many cases, you know, they, they paid, you know, the price for, for their actions. So that, their service has not been in vain. It's kept us safe. And now, you know, the question becomes, can we keep us, ourselves safe without having troops on the ground in Afghanistan? Because al-Qaeda is already starting to put a foothold back in Afghanistan, and that's going to be something we have to, we have to confront. We will eventually have to confront it. I'm afraid that, yes, we will have to send troops back. Uh, it is a very simple fact that sooner or later we're going to have to go back in with boots on the ground. But we put, left ourselves at a great disadvantage because now they know our technology, especially the night vision goggles, which no one else had. And, and it just flabbergasts me that they left all this billions of dollars of our equipment over there. So now our enemies are as better equipped than most nations in the world because we just gave it away. To our enemy. It, it's a bit of a complex issue because the reason we left so much of our, our equipment behind is because we expected and hoped and planned on the Afghan security forces being able to protect their own country. We had built a force of some 300,000 Afghan security forces. And, we, you know, if we had pulled all our equipment out, they would have folded in a day. I mean, we, you can't basically try to backstop a force and then pull all their equipment from them. We had, we had outfitted them with these and in some cases uh, airplanes and helicopters in the hopes that they could defend their own country. Now, now there were some warnings from the military that they didn't think if we pulled all our troops out, and that meant all of our air power out. And our air power was actually critical to backstopping their Afghan security forces. When that happened, I mean, the intelligence community was saying, yeah, it would probably be a year, two or three, and, and they, could, they could crumble. Um, the military was more pessimistic and was thinking maybe in months they could crumble if we, if we pull everyone out. Um, and the decision was made to go ahead with that. It was made by two presidents, by the way. It wasn't just Biden, but although this is on Biden's desk because he's the president at the time of it. But we now know President Trump also wanted our troops out and signed an order to get them out in January. So, you know, and 70 percent of the American public believed that that was the right thing to do. So, yeah, I found the military argument more compelling, but um, – so that's why so much of that, it, it turns out, you know, they lost, it was a, it was a crisis of con- confidence in the Afghan security forces. And when we actually did pull out, um, they, they decided, you know what, uh, I'm not going to fight if I don't have any, anyone watching my back, and that includes air power, because the air power was critical to this fight. And they just surrendered, and at that point, all their equipment fell into the hands of the Taliban. So it was the worst-case scenario. Um, and as soon as it crumbled that quick, uh, nothing bad could be could be held off. Basically, you saw the whole the whole nightmare at the airport and losing 13 brave service members. All of that was because we did not imagine that the Afghan security forces would fold so quick. No, it's it's a fascinating book, and it really shows you what the spirit of America really is about. Um, you even have someone that was an immigrant who became a soldier and ended up. Uh, being awarded the uh, Medal of Honor, Army Captain Florent A. Groberg, who was from France, and his mother was uh, was Muslim, a French-Algerian Muslim. Um, but he, they came to America, and they adopted everything being American, and he fought for America. I mean, it's story after story after story that is absolutely fascinating. And um, for some, they said the medal was a burden. 
you know, it, it was not something they really wanted to be given, it sounds. But each one, you know, speaks of America and for America and to help inspire other soldiers around them, Navy, Marine, Coast Guard, to be the best they can. And I think that's the whole point of your book, isn't it? It is. It is to call it is to call attention to these these extraordinary individuals and try to understand what it is about them that you know this this, this culture and value system that they have, and and you know how they came to get it. And uh, and and I was inspired that you know they come from every corner of America and where we have communities still producing these amazing individuals, and that gives you a lot of help about the next generation. And, and it's why again. They're, they're considered America's new greatest generation because they have fought as bravely as any uh, generation of warriors and soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen that we've ever produced. Well, James Kitfield, people can find you because you're the contributing editor and former senior national security correspondent for Atlantic Media Company and the National Journal. But your new book, which is up on Amazon, link on the show page, people can click on it to get in the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. God bless you, sir, because you did these men honor and their families honor. Well, well, thank you for helping me tell their stories. I appreciate it. Well, I'm telling everyone thank they got to click on it and get the book. So God bless, sir. All right. Thank you. All right. James Kitfield, again, check it out in the company of heroes. And I do believe we have our next victim here in the bullpen. So let's get the computer to bring him in. Uh, former ambassador of the United States, Stanley Escudero. How are you doing, sir? I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Ah, All right. Let me just get this a little here. And I have a guest co-host because, you know, Curtis is not um, with us today. So he he fostered you <laughs> on me. <laughs> so we're Good just, day, we're just winging it. We're winging it yes. today. Uh, he, he, he told me that he was deserting me today, but uh, I'll, I'll try and soldier through anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to admit, uh, my guest co-host Vito Esposito has his own show that he hosts called Mamma Mia No Sharia uh, on Global Patriot Radio. So we've got someone that knows a little bit about what's going on here in, in the world with the rise of Islam. And you were in the heart of it uh, as ambassador over a long number of years. Um, and with, you heard us talking with the former, uh, our former guest about the fall of Afghanistan. There's no other way to, to call it. When I saw that happening, I flashed back to, watching on TV when I was in high school, the fall of Saigon. And I said, this is worse. What have we done to ourselves? We have humiliated ourselves. We have engaged in craven surrender to an inferior force. And we have created a power vacuum whose filling and the perception of that filling will create serious problems for American interests in many parts of the world for years to come. China's looking at this at us and they're licking their chops. They're going, if this president is that weak, well, why don't we just take over Taiwan, which they are attempting to do. I mean, now even Twitter, if you go to 
search for the name Taiwan in their postings, it automatically switches it from Taiwan to China. If they can get a major (laughs) social network to do that, the next step is to actually claim Taiwan. Considering the mindset of those who run Twitter, that's no surprise. But let me say that uh, a more aggressive Chinese attitude toward Taiwan and toward a number of other areas in which they want to expand their influence and control in East Asia, not to mention Afghanistan itself, is, um, is in many ways a direct consequence of the way in which we withdrew from Afghanistan. Uh, let's take a look at Taiwan to start with. Uh, although we supply arms to Taiwan, <clears throat> and uh, we have had historically a close relationship with the island ever since the Kuomintang government fled to there in 1949 when Mao Zedong took over mainland China, we have no uh, we have no treaty of mutual defense. So we're not required, absolutely, under agreement and international law, to defend Taiwan militarily in the event of a Chinese assault against it, although we certainly have bowed up to the Chinese in the past when they have threatened the island. Now, however, the situation has changed a bit because perception has changed. Uh, China is far stronger than it was now. The United States, relative to China, is less dominant than it was in years past. Their current leadership under Xi Jinping is very strong. In fact, he is the strongest Chinese leader they have had since Mao, whereas we are suffering under the weakest leader we have had since, my God, certainly since the Second World War. And and so the Chinese are taking a look at the way in which we cut and ran in Afghanistan, and they are saying to our friends and allies in other parts of the world, you see, You simply cannot depend upon the United States to defend you over the long term or in the crunch. They will leave you hanging, twisting in the wind. And you in Taiwan have to recognize that the wind is blowing from China. And so they let the the Taiwanese digest what happened to Hong Kong, even though China had an agreement with the United Kingdom when the U.K. struck their flag in that colony. Uh, to provide uh, one country, two systems. But now one of those systems has been absorbed by the other one. Uh, And the Taiwanese look at this, and they see that China is on the rise. And they see that the United States is on the decline. Uh, Now, militarily, it's not the simplest thing for the Chinese to threaten to invade Taiwan. First of all, Taiwan is well-armed. It has a well-trained armed force, and there's no reason to assume they would not fight tooth and nail to defend their island against Chinese conquest. If you think back to D-Day, 1942, look at the scale and scope of the effort which we and our allies had to make to prepare for and then actually conduct the invasion at Normandy. It was, and still is, uh, the largest amphibious invasion which has ever taken place in the history of the world. And that's yeah. only 20 miles of, 20 miles yeah. of water. It's 100 miles from the Chinese coast to the island of Taiwan. At present, China doesn't have the military and naval capacity to launch an amphibious invasion, which would be sufficient to invade 
Taiwan if Taiwan resisted. They're building such a capacity, but they don't have it now. And if we were to resist militarily, the chances are really good that any effort that they launched would fail. However, by threatening and by pointing to a weaker America what the Chinese can do and what I suspect they will do in coming years is seek out elements of the Taiwanese political spectrum who are, let's put it, let's say they're somewhat less amenable to the idea of cooperating with mainland China than others. Uh, And then they would find those who are more amenable to such cooperation. And those, to those, they would say, look, we can make you rich. We can make you powerful Mm -hmm. in Taiwan. And we aren't talking about taking over all of Taiwan. We will create a considerable degree of autonomy if you simply join in name only, as, of course, they promised to do with Hong Kong. Abandon it. That's what I think you will see from China in Taiwan in the coming in coming years. But they will be emboldened to take that take on that kind of effort because of what happened in Afghanistan. Well, let me throw a little extra monkey wrench into this whole formula, because at this point, uh, this administration is looking to uh, farm out the production of the um, refueling tankers airline the uh, military refueling tankers, uh, I believe it's the KC-46, which is made here in the United States by Boeing. They want to send it over to the Airbus. Airbus has a completely different design, different body, uh, less of a range, less of maneuverability than we have with the KC-46s. And these KC-46s are workhorses. So if we turn around and farm out to these new tankers out of Airbus, we're not going to have the technology on doing the repairs right away. Meanwhile, here, it's manufactured by Americans here in America, so we have every single thing we can possibly know to keep them up and running. If there's ever a glitch, we can fix it really fast. But if we hand it over to uh, Airbus, we're not going to have that capacity. We're going to lose range. So trying to even think of defending Taiwan. We may not even have planes that can make the distance if we can't refuel well, in mid-flight. With specific respect to that, to that idea, and I'm not aware that it's a done deal yet, um, I, I guess I have three comments. First of all, generally speaking, it is a serious mistake to farm out the manufacture of critical defense items to any nation, no matter no matter how close we may be to them outside of the United States. We simply must keep that capacity in our own territory. That's one. Two, um, we have just offended the French um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a result of the handling of the uh, AUKUS deal between the United States, Great Britain, and Australia to enable Australia to uh, construct a certain number of nuclear-powered submarines uh, thereby, uh, in effect, supplanting the, uh, the the French contract to provide a number of of uh, converted Virginia-class submarines, which had uh, diesel-electric powered uh, engines in them, and um, this has cost the French about sixty billion dollars. That is um, that that has that has irritated them no end. They have withdrawn their ambassador from both Australia and the United States. 
they're complaining like hell about it, and you can understand why they would, even though mm-hmm. the Australians had announced already many times they were not happy with the French deal and were looking to modify it and so forth and so on. Um, the French are now out of that. And so they have less reason to be truly responsive to uh, uh, to America in the future, even though they would uh, they would benefit from the construction by Airbus of the C-46. Uh, and I'll get to the impact of Afghanistan on that in a moment. Let's just say that if we were really clever, and, and the Biden regime is not really clever, but uh, if it were really clever, it would explore the possibility of transferring those French submarines from Australia to Vietnam. Because the Vietnam hate the Chinese and fear them as much as the Taiwanese do. Remember that in 1979, China invaded Vietnam and got their butts kicked. Uh, mm-hmm. But the Vietnamese have become far more pro-Western economically, not politically, of course, but economically in recent years. And they would benefit considerably from the kind of homeland underwater defense which the French submarines would provide. They probably can afford to buy the subs, but we could facilitate the sale with some kind of loan if necessary, thereby uh, advancing our interests and those of other nations in East Asia who are opposed to the expansion of Chinese influence while at the same time placating the French. Um, Now, let's look at Afghanistan and its impact on NATO for a minute. Uh, To a greater extent than any other nation in the world, since the end of World War II, with possible exception of Israel. Uh, and, and even then, I wouldn't agree. Um, NATO Europe has been dependent upon American military protection for its survival. And it enabled them, since the war, to avoid spending vast amounts of their own money on, uh, on military capacity and production and defense <clears throat> against a possible Soviet and later Russian invasion because they knew they could depend on us via the NATO treaty to protect them from the Soviets. This was an article of faith. It has been for all the NATO countries ever since uh, the NATO agreement was signed. And now they just had a look at what happened in Afghanistan. And the Russians are saying to them, and for that matter, the European left is saying to them, do you really think that the United States would go to war, nuclear war perhaps, against Russia in order to defend the city of Stettin in the Baltics or perhaps um, perhaps uh, Poland or even Germany? Do you think they really would when they wouldn't, they wouldn't maintain just a couple thousand troops in Afghanistan and air cover? to enable the survival of the regime which they had supported for 20 years, uh, for which they had spent almost $2 trillion and sacrificed nearly 2,400 lives and 20,000 wounded, do you think that they would take the risk of having their own country destroyed just to protect us? Maybe we had better look to ourselves for our own protection and maybe cut our own deals with the Russians. After all, look at what Mr. Biden did with respect to Nord Stream 2 as a pipeline. Now, there's already Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 also moves under the Baltic Sea, and it delivers natural gas to Western Europe, primarily Germany. Germany gets about 40% of its natural gas from Russia Um, because they already get that much. Uh, You might ask why it's so important to build a second uh, 
underwater gas pipeline, and that has to do more with Ukraine than it does with Western Europe. Uh, Ukraine, after all, was part of the Soviet Union. It was it was the Russian breadbasket for 300 years, ever since it was conquered by Catherine the Great, and it pulled away from Russia in the days after the so-called Maidan Revolution in Ukraine, when a pro-Ukrainian anti-Russian government came to power in the wake of Russian seizure of the Crimean Peninsula because they wanted to retain their big naval base at Sevastopol. And then the Russian, uh, let's say, encouragement of rising by large numbers of ethnic Russians who live in eastern Ukraine and the provision of weapons to those so that they could oppose the Ukrainian government. Uh, Ukraine also was dependent on natural gas from Russia. Part of the 40% of natural gas, which Germany has obtained from Russia, passes through Ukraine in a land-based pipeline called Druzhba Line, the Friendship Line. And Ukraine gets its gas from that line also. After the revolution, the Ukrainians didn't have the money to pay the Russians for the gas, but it gets very cold in Ukraine over time, so they just took the gas anyway and didn't pay for it. And the Russians said, well, (laughs) we just cut off the flow of gas. But, of course, they couldn't do that without cutting off the flow of gas to Germany and Western Europe, which not only pissed off the Germans, but it also meant the Germans wouldn't be paying them for gas. And the Russian economy and the Soviet or the Russian ruble, which is a weak currency, needs the hard currency that it gets from the sale of that gas to Western Europe. And so they couldn't cut it off. And it still flows today. But when Mr. Trump... uh, stopped the completion of Nord Stream 2, he guaranteed that the Druzhba line would have to continue to meet Russia's contractual gas obligations to Western Europe. Now that Mr. Biden has removed Trump's blockage, when that line is complete and gas starts to flow, the Russians will be able to stop the line, the Druzhba line, before it gets to Ukraine, because the gas they need to supply Europe will come from somewhere else. And then the Ukrainians will come under enormous pressure in the wintertime to knuckle under to whatever it is the Russians want for them. Well, not necessarily to conquer by occupying the power, but to bring them back into their orbit politically and economically, sort of like they have with Belarus. Now, mm-hmm. uh, NATO Europe looks at this, and they understand perfectly well what the results are going to be. And so they say to themselves, What is the Biden doctrine that has emerged since Afghanistan and since this agreement with the Russians on the pipeline? Well, it appears to be when you're faced with violence from an enemy, surrender, cut, and run. And when you're faced with strength from a rival, appease them. Both of these things cause the the, the NATO allies to become much less confident of America in the future than they have been in the past, and that, once again, impacts France, which has been, in many ways, the least supportive of the Western European countries anyway. Okay? You know, it it, it is like a huge, huge chessboard, and whoever's going to be the best player, whoever's the grandmaster, is going to come out the winner, because now you're pitting Russia against China. Because now, with China, with that 47-mile border with Afghanistan, comes across and says, let me do your bridges and road programs. Let me do this, you know, we'll put money into your infrastructure and make you a stronger government. But that's just a little walk away going from Afghanistan to Iran to Iraq. 
and it's one huge, large caliphate that's forming under the control of the Communist Chinese Party. And what do they get out of that? The precious minerals that they need for these new electronics and cars. Oh, by the way, that's right. Oh, Joe Biden, crazy Uncle Joe, wants us all to buy electric cars. Where? Made? Where? In China. Gee, Joe, you getting that, your 10% off of that take, too? It, it, is, it is a messed up world we have walked into. Well, it's worse than that. The uh, the Chinese, in many ways, own Biden's family and a number of other uh, very senior members of the Democrat Party. The the uh, Feinstein family, the Pelosi family, uh, have made McConnell. tens of millions of dollars doing business in China. And, and, you know, there are others you could mention who have close financial ties, uh, ties to China. But, but with specific respect to Afghanistan, uh, a couple of comments on that. You, you may know if you've read my bio that I was ambassador to Tajikistan and to Uzbekistan, and I, I have been through all of that territory, including along the Chinese border. And let me tell you that the idea of having a common border doesn't necessarily mean ease of access. You're talking about the high Pamir Mountains, uh, right. altitudes approach, approaching 20,000 feet, and you can't just zip through there. Um, but you can go around. Um, and what the Chinese are doing is not just saying, well, we'll move through, we'll move from our common border into what is known as the Wahan Corridor of Afghanistan and then down into Afghanistan proper. That's, it can be done, but it's, it would require a vast expenditure of money and effort to construct roads, which no matter how hard you worked, couldn't be made to be all weather at that altitude. Um, and it, it, would, it would be very, very difficult for them to do uh, better from the Chinese perspective uh, for them to use their Belt and Road Initiative and their their vast amounts of uh, of currency and assistance in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan uh, to come round into Afghanistan from that direction. Um, and this is certainly a possible thing for them to do. They're working on it. They have had this goal in mind for uh, for quite some time, but they can now move faster toward it. They already have certain mining rights, which they negotiated with the Ashraf Ghani government. Uh, and uh, they're taking a very uh, greedy look at a colossal deposit of lithium. It's, as I understand it, the largest undeveloped deposit of lithium ore in the world still known. It was discovered by the Soviets from some, sometime between 79 and 89 when they were in occupation uh, and they surveyed the area. We resurveyed it and confirmed what the Soviets found in the first place, but of course it couldn't be developed because there was too much violence in the country at the time. What the Chinese will try to do is negotiate rights for a considerable amount of money to develop that lithium and take it back to China, uh, because, as you say, it is crucial in the, in the uh, development of uh, electric batteries for cars, but for a great number of other things, various types of computer equipment, uh, in a, in, a, in a field, an economic field, wherein China already has about 90% of the world's rare earth minerals, which are uh, necessary for the same purpose. But there is also copper and gold. There is the world's largest and purest deposit of the semi-precious stone lapis lazuli. Um, there are, there's the possibility of constructing dams to provide electricity, which could be sold to neighboring countries. That, oh, my God. You, uh, pipelines to move Central Asian gas down through Afghanistan and Pakistan to the Persian Gulf, there's a whole host of possible areas for development into which the Chinese could engage without 
trying necessarily to um, to establish a presence in the country like the Soviets did or like we did. Uh, but that presupposes a degree of stability in the country provided by the Taliban, which may or may not eventuate. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. In the meantime, however, and although they are allies, the Chinese and the Russians are not necessarily going to agree that the Chinese should increase their influence in, the, in that way in nations which the Russians still consider the near abroad, nations which Vladimir Putin has, has, uh, has stated several times, uh, whose freedom from the Soviet Union with the implosion of that entity constitute the greatest uh, political tragedy of the 20th century. He wants to regain influence and control over those nations. And so he will object if the Chinese tend to become too influential in that direction. You have already seen, for example, uh, since we pulled out and the Taliban began to take over, you have seen a very well-known Soviet general show up in Tajikistan to conduct extensive joint military maneuvers with the Tajiks and some Uzbek forces just across the Pyanj River from the Afghan border. Uh, so the Soviets are basically, or the Russians are basically saying, look, um, Afghans, we'd be happy to work with you. But this is our fist. We don't want to use it. Don't make us do so. But at the same time, they're also saying to the Chinese, look, we have an ongoing interest, which we will support in this area. Keep that in mind as you make your plan. Uh, but to the degree that the Chinese are being successful in what they're trying to do with the new government in, in, in Kabul, one of the first things that will happen if they are being successful is the Chinese block the base at Bagram. Uh, and yeah. that's one of the we should look to see if that happens. That indicates the Chinese are making good progress. Well, I was hearing, I, I've been hearing the tom-toms, you know, through the Internet and through some connections, that it is going to be turned over to the Chinese. And that's a very scary thing. I, I have not seen, I've not seen any, uh, any, any indication of an agreement that it would happen, nor have I heard that the Chinese have begun actually to occupy the base. Not yet, but I've, I've been hearing the tom-toms. There's talks going back and forth, and that eventually the Chinese will take over that that base, and that that in itself, turning that base over to them, was the worst thing we possibly could have done. Uh, it gives them well, it was, the best. Go ahead. It was intensely stupid. Uh, you know, you may know again from my bio that I was political advisor to the commander in chief of the Central Command, first a Marine four-star general named George Christ, and his successor, an Army four-star general named Norman Schwarzkopf. While I was there, we dealt with the Iranians rather violently as they were attacking shipping in the Persian Gulf, and we began the planning of the first Gulf War. Uh, and then while I was in Egypt, I worked with a great U.S. ambassador named Frank Wisner uh, as, as I was head of the political section of the embassy at that time to get the Arab League uh, with Egyptian help to agree that we should put troops into Saudi Arabia and that the Egyptians would contribute two armored divisions to our effort against Iraq. So I have some familiarity uh, with, with uh, military activities, with preparation and planning and so forth, and I can assure you, based on that experience, that the very last thing that should have happened in our withdrawal was our withdrawal militarily from Bagram. We should have maintained a very substantial strike force at Bagram, uh, 
which could have supported not only the 7,000 NATO troops that were still there when we agreed or when we announced that we were pulling out, but also could have provided support for the uh, Afghan forces, which were uh, at least initially uh, saying that they were prepared to uh, to stand against the Taliban, assuming again that they had the degree of American support, especially uh, aircraft support, uh, which they had been trained to fight with, and which they weren't prepared to provide for themselves. Uh, when I saw that Mr. Biden had dumped the plan that Mr. Trump had put together, uh, which provided certain defensible milestones. Uh, to ensure that the Taliban weren't moving faster than they should, as it were, so that there would be what Henry Kissinger called a decent interval. In the case of Vietnam, it was two years. It wouldn't have been that long in Afghanistan. But when I saw that, when I saw that uh, Mr. Biden had abandoned the Trump plan and was simply going to get out as quick as ever he could, then it was immediately clear to me, and it should have been clear to anyone who's had any experience in Afghanistan or has ever been there. I've been there three times. Um, that the whole thing was going to fall apart very quickly. Uh, you may remember that uh, Biden originally announced that uh, they would be out by the 11th of September. Uh, my personal prediction at that time was then that the Taliban would have taken over the country by the end of September. As it turned out, he moved up the departure time, but the Taliban also moved up the takeover time, and they took over the country 11 days sooner than I thought they, they could. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it would take them, what, uh, about 20 days, and it took them 11, something like that. Uh, my math isn't all that good. Uh, but anyway, but the, the point is, anyway, they moved even faster than I thought they would. Um, long story short, um, by pulling out in the way that he did, uh, he handed over vast amounts of military equipment to a nation which can't use it all. We'll disperse a lot of it to... Iran or other suppliers of terrorist groups, or they will supply terrorist groups themselves worldwide. Uh, it's, he supplied them with vast piles of cash, which were left behind at Bagram and other places. He put an end to an extraordinary intelligence capacity, which we had there, and I don't know whether we left the equipment behind or not. I hope not. Um, but uh, we could we could listen in to electronic communications, not only in Afghanistan, but also in Russia and China and the, the nations bordering Afghanistan and Iran. Uh, and we can't do that anymore. We don't have that capacity anymore. Yeah. Um, the loss of, it, of and, the and intel is the biggest. Yes. Well, not to mention night vision equipment, which the Taliban did not have and which they now do have, enabling them to fight at night, which is, a, which is an extraordinary advantage over any... Uh, any opponent they might have in in, uh, in in Afghanistan, which which is what has made it so very bad for the Tajiks and the Ismailis who live up in the Panjshir Valley area, who might otherwise be inclined to to uh, to resist the Taliban. Well, this is Vito. Um, I have a quick question for you. You, um, you as mm-hmm. an ambassador, former ambassador of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, what the what role now? And as a and Azerbaijan, yes. Um, and what role does does um, Tajikistan play? You mentioned that Russia um, has uh, has been uh, training in in Tajikistan, but does Ahmad Massoud's uh, Massoud's um, army help uh, at all with with uh, any resistance to the Taliban, or or is that something that uh, is just media blown coverage? Well, initially, it's not immediately clear. 
Ahmed Massoud, who, the son of Ahmed Shah Massoud, uh, and the former vice president of Afghanistan have been leading a resistance up in the Panjshir Valley area. Now, the Taliban was very easily able to fight its way into the Panjshir and take over control of the, of the regional capital and that sort of thing, but the Soviets did that nine times during the course of their uh, occupation of Afghanistan, and each time they were forced back out. So it's not immediately clear that the Taliban, although they have gotten in, will be able to stay. It will depend upon the uh, nature and ferocity of the uh, opposition uh, of the of the Tajiks who live up there. Now, the Tajiks as a people are not a warlike people. Uh, they they have in Dushanbe, the capital, well, they have a, a national park where they have statues of all their national heroes. Right, there are no great generals there or, or regional conquerors. They're poets and authors. Uh, the, the, the Tajiks have a uh, when they're not when they're not fighting one another. I mean, they can be quite violent, but when they're uh, normally the Chinese have a, a, a kind of pleasant literary, uh, almost happy view of the world. Um, now, in the case of in the case of that part of, of Afghanistan, however, um, the people who live up there are a little different from your average Tajik. Average Tajik mm-hmm. is a is a Hanafi Sunni Muslim. Uh, the people who are up there, by and large, are not only Shia, they are seven or Shias, believing in seven imams, not 12, like the Iranians, and they are known as Ismailis because the last imam they believed in was named Ismail. And they take their religious guidance, and in some cases their political guidance, from the Aga Khan, who is regarded, uh, well, he is a lineal descendant of, of uh, the imam Ismail, and he is regarded as the... Mm, the avatar, if you will, uh, of the Holy Prophet upon Earth. Uh, he, the, the, I know him. Um, I haven't seen him in some years, but he's in his late 80s now, and he lives in France. Uh, but he has been working very hard over the years to help develop that region of Tajikistan, where the Afghans live, and he, or I mean, where the where the Ismailis live, and he has promised to do the same uh, when conditions permit. And in Afghanistan, and his people believe him. They have a level of faith in him which boggles the mind if you haven't seen it. Um, well, if, Ambassador, if it has struggle, been... Struggle, they will. Well, it has been so much fun having you on. We have to have you back when Curtis is with us so uh, we can heckle uh, Curtis. But uh, it's so much fun to speak with you, uh, Ambassador Escudero. I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, not at all. It was great fun. Uh, sure, when CS gets back, have him give me a call. We can do this again sometime if you like. All right. God bless you for Thanks. all the hard work you have done. Thank you so much, sir. Go right. Gators. You're most welcome. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right. We've got our next victim up in the bullpen. Uh, I know I'm going to mispronounce her last name, so please forgive me. Kathleen Marquardt. Yes, Marquardt. Right. Oh, I just pronounced it correctly. Hey, pat myself on the back. <laughs> you're, you're one of the first. <laughs> well, you were the uh, the vice president to our friend, uh, Tom DeWeese, at the American Policy Center. People can find you at AmericanPolicy.org. And you do a lot of hard work over there. And I've known and I've been back and forth in conversations with Tom over all these years. Um, I remember him from when we started our Tea Party 
Uh, but holy cow, so much to talk about. I don't even know where we're going to start because you and I were going back and forth in emails. <laughs> and I, I mean, oh, geez. Kathleen, this is some of the craziest stuff I have seen going on in the world. Uh, one of the things you and I were talking about is the Wuhan virus. And as I've been doing my research over the past two years, as we've been coming through this pandemic uh, that has claimed less lives than the common flu has, uh, but everyone is up in arms, um, we can actually trace back to almost a decade before where the SARS and COVID viruses were first being developed. This has a longer history than people think. You with us, Kathleen? Yes, I am. Yes, this this has been going on a long time, and I and and I know this is maybe unusual, but I would like to say, I just watched something this morning that will blow your mind, and I think you need to look it up. It's it's a video called "Free and the Brave," Part Two, Session Five, by Dr. David Martin, and what. I had no idea about the Wuhan and everything else. He has it, and it's just incredible. But, but yes, the Wuhan virus has been in the works for years, and, and it started with AIDS, and, you know, they put AIDS into the COVID virus shot. So we're, we're dealing with some of the most evil that we've ever seen in our lives and and we we have to, here's the thing I, I know you've read a number of my articles and a lot of them I say know your enemy and that's because if you don't know what you're fighting you can't even hope to have a draw so we have to know our enemies we have to know what they're doing and it isn't easy to know and understand because they have been doing this for over a hundred years and and, yeah. and and so we have to the good thing is that there are a lot of people out there doing research and ex, excuse my voice I just came down with COVID yesterday so oh no so I'm. Oh, it's okay. I got my my um, medicine from American Frontline doctors, so I think I'm covered. But I'm going to drink to keep, keep my my voice better. It might run out, and if it does, I apologize. Oh no, no, Does no, it include no. ivermectin? Does it include I'm ivermectin? Taking, I've been taking ivermectin as a prophylactic, and now I'm doing it with this, as as well as azithromycin and the HQC. Okay. Great. And and I'm already feeling a bit better. I'm not desperately ill, so it does work. <laughs> yes. Well, my sister had caught the COVID along with her husband, and she was really, really bad. Uh, thankfully, my cousin, who happens to be a nurse, uh, who she was in charge of the ward for the uh, the COVID patients, so she flew down 
to help take care of my sister and nurse her back. But that's before we knew about ivermectin and all the other, uh, what do you call it, monoclonal uh, medicines that are out there. To help. Yeah, so she got her the care she needed. Otherwise, uh, my brother-in-law said she, my sister would not have made it. But God bless, you know, there is stuff out there, and we just got to fight to get it out to the patients that need it. But here we have a president that's turning around to Florida and saying, no, I'm cutting off your supply, supply of the invermectin. Excuse me? We want to do it in equity. What equity? I've got patients that need it now. You got to, you're sending it to states that don't need it. I need it now. So thank God bless Ron DeSantis. He's got his hands full. Holy moly. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I would, re- you know, I haven't, I've been taking the, the um, ivermectin as a prophylactic for the last month. Just a little bit, just to, and I think that, and jumping on it immediately uh, is what's keeping me in much better shape than I would have been. If I had to call up and go see a doctor and couldn't get in right away, I think I would have been a lot worse. Yeah, uh, possibly. Yeah, because I, I try to make sure I take my vitamins every day, especially B12 and C, but there's also. Um, uh, something called ossocilium, and it, it's like little pellets in a little vial that you take three times a day, which also helps fight off colds, flus, and things like that. But you had mentioned that uh, the COVID virus does have a spliced gene from the AIDS virus. And uh, in my research doing all of this, I found as early as 2016, there were reports about the COVID, and it was saying COVID-19, uh, as of early as 2016, um, a Nobel Peace Prize awardee uh, scientist out of France, I can't remember his last name, began with the letter N, actually analyzed the, the virus back in March, April, May, and stated that he recognized that this was man-made constructed. He recognized it being sliced with the, the AIDS virus. Um, Dr. Robert Malone in Epic Times has written numerous articles and done some Epic Times uh, TV videos about what he knows about the mRNA <coughs> vaccine, as well as what he has discovered on this virus. And it was it was deliberately planned. And the timing was absolutely perfect because we were going into the elections how better to keep people away from the polls or influence their vote by releasing this into the public. And so it, it, it was a deliberate plan by the Chinese to try to take down America. Am I looking at this right or wrong, Kathleen? Well, let me um, tell you what I think. America has been in on this with the Chinese since day one. We gave all this to them. Fauci went over and built all these special labs for them. Um, and, and, and you have to go back, and this is my opinion, you have to go back to the end of World War II when uh, right near the end we were total allies with Shanghai Shek's China because China was keeping the Southeast Asia 
clear uh, for democracy. And but they wanted the the powers that be wanted the Russians. The Russians wanted in on get it, taking over China, and but they didn't have enough men, so they held off the end of the war. And and Japan wanted to give wanted to give up back then, but we wouldn't let them because Russia wanted Japan too. But MacArthur was in Japan, and he says Russia's not getting in there. But we let China. Now this you can look it up. It was the Yalta Agreement. Our government gave China all the China's resources in Manchuria, what Russia wanted, and half control of the railroads. Plus, we demanded that China allow their Chinese Communist Party, which was about as as small as uh, uh, a drop of water in a bathtub, to have equal power with the Chinese government, we allowed, we gave them this in Yalta, but we didn't even tell Shanghai Shek for days. Now, so our government has been on, in on this with the Chinese since, since at least that long. Um, that's my opinion. It's from all the history I've read, but our, it's the deep state. It's it's the deep green, and it's the it's the people in Washington. I'm I'm writing an article right now on on how they changed our government, and if we had any decent people in Congress right now, they would get up and say, "Look, we no longer have any power. The government executives." And the, and the bureaucracy have taken over, we are worthless. And if you stop and look at everything that's going on in our government, you will notice that they have no power. And they had no power the whole time, the whole time Trump was in. If they did the first two years, he would have had everything going for him. But they were all in cahoots together. We, we, have such corruption that most Americans are never, ever going to be willing to open their eyes and see how bad it is. No one wants to believe it. Yeah, we have the clerical staff is running the office instead of the office manager. Uh, Once you put someone in and create a new agency, it never goes away. So we have people pushing paper and making regulations and treating them as if they're the law, fining people, jailing people if you break one of these regulations. Uh, my friend Michael Doherty almost went to jail because of a cleric in the uh, FCC. I just, it is absolutely stunning how there is a deep state sitting there and no one really wants to recognize it. And they're the ones that are pulling all the strings. You think we have a president? You think we have a Senate or a House of Representatives? No, it's all show. It's all show. We have an IRS that wants to expand and is arming themselves. And this is not a conspiracy theory, folks. How many people did Joe Biden want to expand the IRS? 
and he wanted to arm them. He's already said it publicly. So, you know, yep. it, it, it is a deep state that is completely out of control. And I don't know what the answer is to correcting it. I really well, don't. My answer is, one, we have to quit trying to deal with the federal government. We have to quit petitioning them. We have to quit talking to our senators and congressmen because they have no power whatsoever. We have to ignore the swamp, and we have to take back our cities, counties, and states if possible. We have to be building up, as Tom would say, our freedom pods in in every state, every place you want to you're going to be living. Let me tell you, they're going to collapse the economy very soon, and we're all going to be sitting here. There's going to be no food brought in, so many things. We have to save ourselves so that we can save the, the idea of our Constitution and our liberty. This is what we have to do because you know, like you just said, the deep state is in control, and they have been in control. And they were in mostly in control in, in Trump's White House. I mean, look at how many people that were from the deep state that were right inside the White House. He didn't, he was, it, but we haven't had a real president that has really been doing his own thing I mean, Obama did his own thing because he was in cahoots with the deep state. So he, but, and Bush also was in cahoots with the deep state. But they have been running things for decades. And people, here's, and you and I both know, I mean, Tom and I have been trying to tell people for 30 years now what's happening. We've been telling them about Agenda 21. And as I said in my article, we've been saying this, and yes, we've been wearing tinfoil hats because everybody thought we were crazy because we were saying they were trying to reduce the human population, and they couldn't see it. They didn't see that every day, every day, more babies are aborted in the womb than the number of people killed in 9-11. Every single day, and this has been going on for how many decades? So they don't see that this is all going on, and they don't see the older experiments, the experiments um, on on the blacks with with uh, and what is the word I want? Um, you mean the Tuskegee experiments? Tuskegee experiments? Yeah. 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 With yes. the syphilis, yes. Yes. And, and and they did not give them penicillin that would cure it because they want to do away with what they consider the wrong people. That was the blacks and the Indians. They they this has been going on for decades and people don't understand it. They need to understand that that I mean, I remember I've seen You've seen videos of people telling us from the 50s and 60s, wake up, people, here's what's happening. But people don't wake up because they don't want to have to do anything. They don't want to have to think. And so they want 
you and I to do it for them, and it isn't going to happen. So we're we're really we're really up against it. But I really, truly, truly believe that we, the the Americans that are that are conservative, I won't call us Republicans because the Republicans are as bad as the Democrats. <laughs> They're all in it together. We have what is needed to take back our country if we are just willing to wake up and do it. Well, do this certain counties, oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, for a second, Vito. There's certain counties I see uh, across the nation. Now, New York State is the latest, has a county upstate New York, declared themselves a constitutional county. The, their legislator in that county said, no, we're passing a law. We are going to be constitutionally funded, founded. Uh, the Governor Cuomo's attempt to steal guns, uh, the attempt to do a lot of unconstitutional things would not occur within that county. So local governments are starting to wake up and say, hmm, we've got to take the power back from the federal government, from the state government, and make it more centrally located here. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yes. And and a constitutional county means they have constitutional sheriff. And that sheriff is the highest law of the land. And right. he and we can say we can say to the federal government, we don't like this law, we're not gonna follow it because that is our right. That, I mean, that's in the Constitution, but yes, I know the Constitution has been gutted, but it's nevertheless, we can still keep doing it. Vito, go ahead. Um, in your article uh, on Agenda 21, the cancel culture on, on worldwide scale, I actually yes. had a conversation yesterday with someone, and, and you have there's a paragraph in there concerning Bill Gates and the Chinese have bought up a great deal of America's farmland, and they've accelerated it greatly. What, for what reason? What, what, could you kind of um, give us an, an idea why the Chinese and Bill Gates would be buying so much farmland in America? Um, I, I want to add something to that. They're, they're okay. also paying farmers. To, to turn over their crops, to tear them out, to not raise those crops. If they don't, they're going to find them. So they, can, so they are trying to starve us. They are literally going to starve us. So people have to be, they, they, you better stockpile a whole lot or you better learn how to grow crops. But, but even, I mean, even, I know that I don't have enough of a garden that I could grow enough crops to ever feed me and mine. But, yes, that's exactly what they're doing. And people, I mean, everybody's talking about it now. Everybody's talking about the farmers are being paid to turn over their crops and, and not produce food. And, and you know, that, the other thing they're adding to us is that fake meat. They said, well, we're going to have fake meat, so you don't have to worry about the cattle. Well, I'm not eating fake meat ever. Cause <laughs> I, I want my steak. What are they going to put in it? What are they going to put in it? You know they're going to put stuff in it that's going to kill us. Why else would they do it? 
I watched a video uh, last week, as a matter of fact, with regards to the farmland in Nebraska. They were paying the farmers one and a half times the, the value of their land to, to kill their crops. And if they did not kill the crops, the government was going to come in and, and spray a contaminant on the crops. And one of the farmers stated that he, he's, he is – he is destroying his crops only because if the government sprays an Agent Orange type contamination on it, he loses that land for further, for further usage in, in the future. Yep, that's just what I was saying. They're paying them to destroy their crops. And why else would you do it if it weren't to starve the, starve the people? Because... America has been the breadbasket of the world. We've fed people all over the world with our excess. But now that, you know, they've shut down the, 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 the valley in California where every, by, because of the Delta smelt, they haven't allowed them to have water. So that, that, that huge valley that used to feed a lot of America and the world has now become desert. I mean, They've been working on this for years, and and I don't know what it's going to take. I know we don't need a huge amount of people to wake up. We need what they call Gideon's Army. He didn't have that many, but he managed, and that's what we need. But we need some. We need to work up, wake up people. I know here in I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and probably six months ago we started our Freedom Pod here. And it's going great guns. We're taking over. We're, we have people running for the open offices in all, every, every slot that we can because this is what the left did, and this is what we have to do is we have to take over our government and have control of exactly where we live right now. And, and it isn't going to be easy, but we have to do it. You, know, like you, you would be, <laughs> you would be really cheering for me because earlier this week, I attended school board meeting virtually. I, previous meeting I had gone in person, and I didn't find out about the meeting until the last minute. So that's why I did it virtually. And um, when I attended the meeting back in August, I got up to introduce myself, and I heard some snickering, and I saw exchange books being exchanged between certain board members. I, I ignored it, and I had my say, and I sat down, and when they had the virtual meeting, a friend of mine, she had her say, and I could hear them sneering and snickering. Now I'm going, oh, my goodness. And then her husband spoke, and then I spoke, and they actually tried to prevent me from speaking uh, because the clerical staff, deliberately ignored my email with my phone number on it. And thankfully, I was texting my board member saying, David, you know, you got the email, so just make sure that they, you follow through. And he deliberately interrupted the meeting to make sure that they said, Ann Ubelis had sent an email saying she had a statement to make. Uh, I would like to hear what she has to say. So he made sure I got in there. Well, I was so fuming, so angry. This little guinea just let loose, and I was getting emails cheering me on. I basically told them that if you sneer at one of us, you sneer at all of us, and I don't care what side of the political aisle you stand on. 
you have the right to exercise your First Amendment right of free speech and for petitioning the government. And I let loose. And I says, for those that snickered, I said, shame on you. We're coming for your seats. I says, we have already actively started to look for people to take your seat away from you. And I said, those that did not chastise them for snickering, you're next. And then for those that defended us, thank you. And then I turned around to the school board supervisor and I said, Mr. Rodriguez, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that we voted in this board that you are stuck with. Well, we're going to write this ship. We're going to vote them out and give you something that you can work with. I was so fuming mad. And this is what we have to do. That is perfect. That is, you know, that the worst thing that can happen in situations like that is when I used to do radio shows and things and there'd be animal rights people, when I go to give the punchline, the actual thing, they'd start laughing so that the audience couldn't hear what I said. And mm-hmm. the good thing is, a good thing is you can at least get your point across with the, you know, they're so, it's so childish. It is so childish. Yeah. I mean, I was doing one of these things where they have, they invited all different types of groups. You know, I came in representing the Tea Party. There was the Republican Party, the Democratic Party. It was one of these things to get kids to register to vote. And everyone, you know, goes up and speaks. I'm towards the very end. I'm one of the last ones to speak. And also I start getting, I start getting the catcalls and the stickers and everything else. And I stopped and I said, uh. hold it right here and right now. We gave utter respect to every single speaker that came forward, no matter what side of the aisle they stood on. We gave them respect, and I'm demanding respect from you. And all of a sudden, I got applause. I uh, love you. In, in their face. I love They're it. cowards. They're cowards. You call them out, and they will, they will hide under the, the, the tiniest rock possible. They're cowards. Plain and simple. It's a, they're, they're cowards and bullies. And they and they like to pick on on women, and they're. I've been you know I've, before I got into Agenda 21 before it was addressed. I was fighting animal rights, and they were the epitome of the bullies that that were cowards. The for animal rights, but what about human life? Right. Well, yeah. They'll, 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 they'll be pro, pro-choice, but you support animal rights. Yeah. Talk about total hypocrisy. But of course so, it is. But... Go, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, you have to understand that the bottom line of animal rights they don't care about animals. They're just using the fight for rights for animals to attack humanity. Right. Yeah, and here it comes back down to population control. And people yep. think that <clears throat> we may be nuts, but they are, I, I was just listening to some of these world leaders speaking at the UN, and every last one of them is like, you know, we've got to, we've got to get a lower population. And yet France is complaining that there's not a high enough birth rate to sustain the nation. But we have to we have to call the population. Well, why do you think 
Obamacare had it in Obamacare, and I read both bills before they were married, before Nancy Pelosi said, you got to pass it to see what's in it. I read both bills, and both of them said that if you're between a certain age, if you're very young or you're very old, they will have the, they have the option to withhold care for, from you. And what are they saying now with the COVID vaccine? If you're of a certain age, a certain age, you're going to have care withheld with COVID. If you're not vaccinated, they may not admit you to the hospital. They're already trying different methods in which to cull the population. Oh, they've been doing this. They have been doing this for decades and decades. And but but it's been under the radar until now. But but the here's here's the biggest problem I think we have is because of the dumbing down of our schools and the brainwashing in our schools that we do not have generations, younger generations of people that that can even comprehend what's going on, let alone know how to fight it. So they're just, they want to get rid of us, all of us old people, and I'm one of them. They want to get rid of us so that there is no, no, what I would say, encyclopedic knowledge of what things really are. Well, you know, here's the problem here, too, because I was watching um, on Newsmax the other day. Someone went and did a survey about what students, high school and college students, knew about the Constitution. And almost every single person they interviewed said, oh, it's an old document. It's that doesn't apply to today. It was written all that time ago. And it, it, the words are racist, uh, it's bigoted, and I'm, I'm triggered by the, the phrasing. I'm like, what? Have you even read the Constitution? Have you read the Declaration of Independence? And no, they're not being taught. American history is not being taught. Multiculturalism is destroying our nation. Instead of being the melting pot our founders wanted us to be, we now divide and then conquer, and which is what they're doing. And they're stealing, they're stealing intelligence from our youth. They're, they're not allowing them to develop their brains. If you can't do it in 20-some-odd characters on your smart device, it's not worth talking about. If you don't have the most likes on TikTok or whatever is out there, you don't matter. It is an electronic age, a disposable age, and it's scary for what our future may look like. Then uh, it's all been programmed. Have you read the B-Step program was designed by uh, Health Education and Welfare before HHS, um, had University of Michigan, I think 1967, designed the B-STEP program, behavioral science something. I'll look it up and send it to you. But it basically says that we're going to program the schools to dumb down the students to most of them. We just want to teach them how to enjoy drugs and just live their life with it basic universal income now they used a different term for it but that's where the basic universal income comes 
and only a few will be allowed to to really start learning. And of course, you know whose children those few are going to be. But no, this has been programmed how they're going to dumb them down with drugs and and teach them about all these sexual things that we're all hearing about now. This has been in the works for decades. So we think, oh, this is a new thing, these new transvestites teaching our kids all this stuff. No, they've been working on this, working on this for so long. They have it implanted in so many places that I don't know if we could ever get rid of it if if we tried if we if if we could actually get a government in Washington that would do what we wanted um i don't think it i still don't think it would work then i think that we're so close to all this mess that we literally just have to start at the beginning um with our with our towns and counties well i, I think there was a there's a passage oh, in the sorry. Declaration of Independence that says um, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government. And uh, right. I would say that that fits your, uh, your description, Kathleen. Absolutely. And don't you wish we had the power to do it? They, they, yes. We, they know we have guns, and that's the one reason that they haven't been breaking down our doors to give us the jab or whatever, but, but they have so much more power than we do. And now that you – I don't know if you've heard about these, these things they're going to put in the air that has, uh, has an infection that is going to be, is going to be breathed in or – something about by humans. I mean, they're, they're working. They're, here's the deal. This whole thing was supposed to be finalized in 2050. But I'm sure a lot of the older people like Klaus Schwab and all decided they wanted to have it finalized by 2030. And that's why we're seeing these big pushes now because because COVID nineteen wasn't supposed to come in till twenty five. So we're we're seeing them trying to push ahead their agenda. Yeah, and that's all part of that agenda twenty one and thirty that you talked about or you write about in your article. You know, I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to find the article. I pulled it out last night, and it was someone in Health and Human Services <clears throat> that came up with the idea that if if you don't get yourself vaccinated, using a blow dart gun to force, forcibly inject you with the vaccine. And yep. I'm going, so you saw that too. All right. Uh, I don't know what I did with the article. It's, Somewhere in this mess, I got piled up on my desk here. But can you believe that they have become so arrogant? They have decided that they can put stuff in your body against your will. It's no longer voluntary to get. No, no. We had to mandate polio. Well, polio was a bird of a whole different feather. We had time to develop the virus, the vaccine properly. 
these have not even been properly developed. So we don't even know what the side effects are, are going to be years down the road. We're getting reports of women that are pregnant miscarrying, uh, women having uh, missed periods of un- unusual menstrual cycles, uh, of sterilization, uh, men of swollen areas. Uh, I'm not going to say it on the air where, but you can figure out exactly where, as well as men coming up with sterility. Uh, people getting the AIDS virus from the vaccine, well, duh, it's spliced with the AIDS uh, gene. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to get AIDS. There, there's so many things we don't know. Plus, this vaccine alters your DNA. What does it make you? Is this now the mark of the beast they told us to look out for? It's a very good question. I think it's the predecessor to the mark of the beast. But but one thing we have to, I, I think that it's been fairly much proven, is these vaccines are, call, are causing thrombosis and a lot of blood problems, um, a lot of it, it, that um, blood clots and things. So heart inflammation as as yeah one doctor has said within the next 2 to 6 years we're going to see a major reduction in the in the population because of all the people that have taken the vaccine and 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 we've you know they quit the animal trials because the animals were dying too quickly so what does that tell you you know wake up people wake up uh, i I, it just it shocks me that people are so willing to deal to accept peer pressure. Oh yes, I want to be on the good side. I'll do this. I'll do that. And and we may be not allowed to go into stores if we haven't been vaccinated. So what? If if <laughs> I think that what's going to happen if that really 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 happens that. There's going to be a lot of stores going out of business because the ones that are going to be allowed to go into them are going to be dying. Uh, All by design. All by design. Yeah. The Marxist mentality. (laughs) And Dr. Robert Malone has had, like I said, articles up on the Epic Times, and and he's being proven to be right, that if you get the COVID virus, you end up having natural immunity that may last your entire lifetime. Yep. So, you know, and why <laughs> is it that this virus is learning to mutate so fast? Because that is part of the design of the virus. And why are the vaccines only good for one variant and not for all variants? Again, that is by design. You know, we can go on and on for hours, uh, but we need people to start waking up. And I sat down with my doctor and I sat down with my cardiologist because I have several serious health issues. I asked them about the vaccine and how my conditions would interact with it because I've already had too many strokes. I don't need to have a full-blown stroke. I'm taking care of my mom who's a stroke victim, and she's saying the same thing. She says, I'm not doing it because if she has another stroke, it would kill her. And these things are known to cause blood clots. Now, we sat down with the doctor for her. We sat down with the doctor for me. And both doctors told us, don't do it. 
So you have to make an informed decision. You have to make an informed. I mean, I'm not telling anyone to not get it. You've got to make the decision for yourself. But don't let anyone force you or cow you into doing something that you instinctively think you really don't want to do. But you also have wise doctors because I'm meeting so many people whose doctors are trying to push them to to have it. A friend had COVID a couple weeks ago, and she was very, very sick, and her doctor kept pushing her to get the vaccine. And I said, no, you have you have you're You're immunized by having it. Don't do it. And, and she didn't. I I have to tell you I'm glad that I got COVID now because now I have this the antibodies that mm-hmm. makes me pleased. So aren't you aren't you a little bit uh, taken aback that that the whole campaign against the unvaccinated by Biden Harris is to demonize the unvaccinated, but yet they say nothing about those who have had COVID who have built up the natural antibodies, who have a, actually have a better defense against the artificial uh, injection. I mean, and, and now you have the antibodies, so you, ha- you actually have a better deterrent, you know, against COVID and any other future variant. So I'm going to be a target because they do not want us who have had the COVID to be alive. That's why they're pushing yeah. them to have to have. Uh, boosters and everything they want to you know i mean you know it i know it they want to kill us off especially us who know about it well i also say throw into the mix follow the benjamins look how much money these pharmaceutical companies have made when the vaccine first came out it was something like six dollars a shot it's now what over 40 or 50 dollars a shot and, and every single person that gets it, it's money in the bank for the pharmaceutical companies. They're making a mint. So you had the first vaccine, then you had the second vaccine. Then you had a booster shot. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, that may be only good for two or three months. You're going to have to get a fourth or have to get a new shot every five, six months. It's putting money in the bank to the pharmaceutical companies, and they're laughing all the way to the bank. And we're the fools that, the, that put it there. Blissful idiots. How about this? You can't get ivermectin anymore. They've made all the stores pull it off their shelves. They, okay? You, it, I mean, maybe somebody. I have a friend that's ordered it online, and now they're saying, oh, maybe in six months, they're they're taking all the drugs that can help you out of existence for you. You know, and they're making fun of people. Oh, they're taking horse medicine. Well, I I think my taking horse medicine for the months before I got sick is what's allowing me to even have this conversation today. Correct. And it's twenty cents a pill versus uh, what forty dollars a shot or or a seven thousand dollar a day uh, ventilator. Yeah, well, the ventilator is to kill you. I mean, that's what the ventilator is for. I agree with that. Well, you know, my Tea Party people were asking where to get the ivermectin. And um, what is it? Uh, Oh, geez. Uh, There's one called freedoctor.org. 
uh, and there's another one down in Florida, and I don't have it directly in front of me because someone asked me last night, and I emailed the information to them last night. But there are some places that you can go online to find the ivermectin. But the question right. is now, is a post office, is the post office now going to start to inspect every single package that comes from these pharmacies to see what you're buying and stop you from getting the ivermectin? You know the Postal Service has the ability to inspect all packages. So, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that part of the Constitution to be safe in your person and papers? Oh, wow. Well, wow. gee, think about that. It's such a blatant violation of our constitutional rights to be safe in our persons and papers. Now, they're asking for vaccine passports. Wait a minute. Isn't that in violation of the HIPAA Act? That could be punishable up to a quarter million dollars? Hmm. Oh, but wait, wait. The HIPAA only relates to them now. It doesn't protect us. That's correct. Right. They they wrote something into the bill into uh, legislation that states that the uh, that this that this does not violate HIPAA when they yep. uh, in, in mandating the uh, um, or and asking if you've been vaccinated or not. Yep. <laughs> Sick. Uh, I I would love to challenge that in court. I really would. Sure. And would see what the Supremes could say about that. I, mean, I would be willing to take it all the way up there. If anyone wants to fund a lawsuit for me, yeah. <laughs> Bye, guys. Because someone well, somewhere along the way is going to have to challenge that. You know, but uh, no, I t- it ain't going to happen because the Supreme Court is along with the deep state. I know they ruled on Texas and the abortion issue, but I think they're throwing one in every once in a great while to to make us think that they still can be objective. But that Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been corrupted. You remember the Kilo case, uh, Suzette Kilo in New London, Connecticut, who had a house, a little pink house, and the government and Pfizer wanted all these houses in this whole neighborhood torn down so they could build their their new plant there, and they were going to build the you know hotels and restaurants and blah blah blah. And Suzette was the only one that fought them, took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Everybody, Democrat and Republican, knew that she would win because there's no way you can take private property for, for tax use. And she lost. And that's when the government... Stephen Breyer. You, you, you no longer have proper, private property rights. That was um, the major case, and that means if we don't have private property rights, we don't have rights to our own bodies. We only have rights to our thoughts, and we've got to keep that in mind because they're going to start using it pretty soon. I think it was David Souter. It was Justice Souter who who was the the deciding factor on that case, if I'm not mistaken. Was it Souter or Breyer? Uh, I think it was it was Souter because it was a George H. W. Bush appointment, and it yep. shocked everybody with uh, with the eminent domain issue, and he opened up the floodgates um, with with that decision. Well, uh, George H. W. Bush was one of them. 
<laughs> yes, he yep. was. The New World Order, I believe it was called. Isn't that right? Yep. Didn't he, yep. Wasn't he the first yep. one to mention that? <laughs> yes, yep. yes, absolutely. absolutely. And his son is, is just following in his footsteps. He just uh, was campaigning for Liz Cheney in Wyoming. Jeez. You know, yes. talk, talk about going down the toilet. Boy, did he go down real fast on that one. Uh, man, but there's so much more to talk about. Holy cow, it just... You know, your guys are out there fighting. Uh, what is this heritage land? Because I was looking at the map, and in some cases, almost the entire state is deemed heritage land. What is going on? Our government is going now for another form of land grab throughout the states? Oh, this has been going on for some time. And it's Tennessee, the state that I regretfully live in right now, um, is. The whole, all of Tennessee is a national heritage area. And what it is, is they made these, these designations that, that, and they tell people, oh, this is going to bring tourism to your, your area, that you're going to love it. It doesn't bring tourism to your area. It doesn't allow you to do a lot of things with your area. You have no longer control of, of, how you want to build there, what you want to do. It's, it's just, like you say, it's another land grab. And it's sort of, it's, it's in line with uh, what are the ones that they do in all the national parks, the world, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the term, where they have, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, protected area and it's most of most of our national parks have been turned over to the UN um, to as, as as their protectors of our national parks if you people do not understand every little bit of zoning every time they change something we lose the rights to our lands conservation easements are are unbelievable destroyers of private property and and people don't they just they they don't understand that they're giving giving to the government and and the original constitution says we the government doesn't get to own land only the people the government only gets forts and the the capital right Kathleen, so Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the U.S. Constitution states that the U.S. Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. Um, And so if we're giving up land, if the federal government is giving land to the United Nations, that's that's seditious. It's probably treason. It is. It is. But who listens to us? Who listens? (laughs) I'm sorry. I get worked up about this. But this has been... This has been our fight for for 30 years in trying to make people understand it. And we're also, China shouldn't be allowed to be buying land in the United States either. This was a a recent change. This was a recent change, not that long ago. Um, Well, they are now, they are... Well, the Chinese are now trading on our stock market. For decades, they have been not allowed to trade anything on the stock market. But suddenly, 
now they're allowed to participate in the stock market. Um, there's something else, because you mentioned the farmland that they were buying up, but I'm hearing from uh, builders, if you're building a new subdivision, China is buying up the houses to rent to Americans or to rent to whomever. Yeah. Uh, this is something China else that's new. Of, that tr- China's Go part ahead. of that, but BlackRock is a bigger one that's doing yes. that right now. Um, this is this is remember what what they said in the fourth industrial revolution you're not going to own anything you're going to rent it and you're going to love it um this is this is all part of it this is what people don't understand do you, i don't know if you remember the trans texas corridor that was this big i think 12 lane highway with a with train line in between and it was going to go from the from Texas up to Missouri, I think go all the way. It was supposed to end up in Canada, and right. our government gave it to China and says, "Here, China, this is yours." They were, and you know, they own a number of our ports in this country. We've given them yes. ports, and and mm-hmm. so people don't understand. They've been grad, and now we stopped the Trans Texas Corridor. We stopped it, which was. An incredibly huge thing, but what people don't understand is how much more do we have to give to China before they have control? And and keep understanding that our government is in total cahoots with China. The deep state and China and Russia have been in on this from, like I said, at least the end of World War Two. Uh, it's a hot mess. It is a hot mess, and it's going to take a lot to get ourselves out of this. I'm praying. Uh, I'm praying that uh, we do find a way and we pull ourselves back. But we got to start with our education system. The stealing of our education system is is outrageous. It's the stealing of our youth, and they're not going to be prepared for what is coming. That's part of the plan, and we have to get our – the best thing about COVID, the only good thing I can think about COVID is a lot of kids that were – that had to learn from home, their parents decided to homeschool them since then. And and that is the best thing that has happened. But – and I can say, well, it's not enough, but it's a start, and if we get – Starts from other things. We have a chance. We have a. I, I have to believe. I have to believe we have a chance. Well, people like can find you outlook. at. Um, we we have to have a chance. Yes, we do. But you know there is hope. Because uh, this was an article up in the Western Journal. Uh, in small and large groups, with thoughts said aloud and others held close and silent. American students began Wednesday in prayer at the annual See You at the Poll event. <clears throat> um, I'm speed reading through this as I'm, I'm doing this. As noted by CBN News, it was the 21st year of the student-led event that takes place around the world at school flagpoles in the morning before classes begin. This, came, this year's theme came from the New Testament, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
So thousands of high school students bowed their head in prayer in unison on Wednesday. There is hope. That is fabulous. That is fabulous. Okay. I apologize because, uh, you know, you're saying that there's background noise, and the only thing I got here is just my papers that I've been shuffling back and forth. I don't know if that was the noise you heard. But I think so. But See, that's all right. We'll circle back to it. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a, a link up to the American Policy uh, Center on the show page, Kathleen, so when people listen to us in the archives, and they can trace it back to you and follow your articles. It's AmericanPolicy.org. You and Tom DeLeese do a lot of good hard work. And we need more people like you out there doing this. And it's not just Agenda 21. It's climate change. It's the Green New Deal. It's the segregation of the vaxxed to the unvaxxed. You cover just about everything. And I was surprised to find my house inside the Heritage Corridor. It's all Agenda 21. Green New Deal is just Agenda 21, Agenda oh. 2030. They're all Agenda 21. They Some of them focus on different parts and some, you know, but it's all the same thing. Well, I was happy so to what say you, that we, we schooled I, Newt Gingrich on Agenda 21. He had voted for it, and we chewed him out a brand new one. He was sitting down eating lunch with us. And we had to tell him exactly what Agenda 21 was. He didn't know until that point. And I said, you voted for it. Why? If you didn't know what it was for, why'd you vote for it? So, um, it. He, he's a con-con. <laughs> he speaks well, though, right? Yes. <laughs> well, go ahead, Vito. You were gonna no, I was just going to say... Yeah, and with regards to Agenda 21, you said the Green New Deal. All I can I continue to think about with the Green New Deal is the confiscation of America's wealth, um, and and how the, the last week Zoom call with uh, with with Biden, um, the real polluters of the world are are China and India, and they were not on the Zoom call, but the UN was, along with the smaller nations, and you had you know Biden talking about committing you know billions of dollars more. Uh, to the Green New Deal, when in fact the real, you know, culprits in the world, if if in fact, um, you know, we are creating this mess, is China and India. But they aren't so included in having to cut back. They yes. were never, ever included in having to cut back on their carbon output. It's, that's disgusting. One. It's a that's- disgrace. It's a it, con. It tells, you, it tells you exactly what's going on. It isn't about the truth of anything. And it's not that we need to reduce our carbon output. I'm, right. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's all a lie. But the hard part is comprehending, to being able to understand it and know it. And because it seems like who, nobody could do this much evil to people but they are, and we have to understand that, and that's the hardest part. We can't believe it's actually happening. That's what we cannot nope. believe. No, nope. being sold out, you know, and it's just oh, yep. oh, just wow. Great work, though. I have to say, your articles are fantastic. I I really love that Agenda Twenty One article, and and the quotes you have in there. Uh, from Ted Turner, Mikhail Gorbachev, Gorbachev, MIT, Penny Chisholm, uh, Chisholm, and 
Jacques Cousteau's comment on, on the world population must be eliminated by 350,000 people a day is it, it's chilling. It's all in their words. All yep. in their words. Well, Kathleen, it has been a pleasure, and you are such a trooper that, you know, as, as bad as you're feeling today, you took the time to make sure you called in, and you did a full hour with us. God bless you, woman. Yeah, God bless Thank you. Thank you. Right. God bless you ha- for having me on. I appreciate getting a chance to speak to new people. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Well, you're always, always welcome. Thank you. I'm always here for you. Thank you. Please take Kathleen, care of yourself. Thank you. Kathleen Mark at AmericanPolicyCenter.org, AmericanPolicy.org. Kathleen, what a what a joy, what a pleasure. Uh, we're waiting for our next guest to call in. It's supposed to be Lieutenant Colonel James J. Carafano. Um, hopefully, he won't forget that we're here. But you know, he Vito, um, we've been hearing about General Milley's uh, treasonous phone call. Well, guess what? Um, they determined that uh, that wasn't the only time he did this. He's done it several other times. And uh, this is from a witness from inside the administration had suggested this sort of behavior wasn't abnormal for Millie. E. Casey Wardinsky, a former assistant secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, claimed that Millie, who, according to the book, Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, called his Chinese counterpart twice to tell him that the U.S. would not attack Beijing, routinely violated the bounds of his authority. He said it was uh, Wardinsky and Milley and Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, General James McConnell, uh, engaged in a pattern of behavior to thwart President Donald Trump. These, these people should be court-martialed, honestly. But it looks like we have our next victim in on the line. Let's bring him on. Lieutenant, there's a teeth in backwards. Lieutenant Colonel James J. Carafano with the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Hey, great to be with you. Welcome. Yeah, it, it, it's a bunch of paisanos. I've got Vito Esposito <laughs> with me. you got me. And it's going to be like old home week in Little Italy. <laughs> like, don't, don't, don't apologize. Like, there's like anything wrong with that because it's just really kind of a symbol of American greatness, right? Oh, it it's is October. Uh, it's almost at, October. And, and the only the only thing I have to serve the really important stuff is is if you haven't tried Michael's sauce from Brooklyn, it's like the best. I never thought in my life I would ever eat a jar of sauce, but it is like the best. His gravy is like the best red sauce ever. So there you go. Ah, see, see, see I come from the family that says gravy. See, I make my <laughs> sauce because I don't put meat into it. I'll add it later on, but I jar my own sauce. I, I just can't eat store bought sauce. But this, stuff, yeah, no, really seriously, this stuff's amazing. I think I got Joe Piscopo hooked on it. This stuff is amazing. <laughs> and what, what I do is I get the gravy and then I do the Sunday sauce. You know, the oh. sausage and the prosciutto and meatballs and everything. And it's just freaking awesome. I got to leave. I, <laughs> you now make, you made me hungry. I got to make some sauce now. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, of course, I have to have my mom. She's living with me. She suffered a stroke last year, so she's now living with me. But uh, she is so Italian, Roman Catholic, she will not eat meat on Wednesdays, 
and Fridays. Now, what's with Wednesdays? Oh, God, I knew Fridays. <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday was yeah. original. <laughs> that is that is old school. It is real yeah. old school. You know, it's funny. I know we have serious things to talk about, but I, I was telling, I had a bunch of young kids lunch today. I was telling, you know, about my grandparents, and how, you know, how they had two houses, you know, upstairs was for visitors and all the coaches, everything was covered in plastic. And then, you know, downstairs is where you lived and you sat at the table, you drank espresso and, you know, talked about your neighbors, uh, the, you know, the good old days before cell phones. Well, no one sat at the dining room table. Everyone sat at the kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Like, I didn't know. I didn't actually know there were other rooms in the house. I <laughs> well, I think my about grandmother the had over the furniture. <laughs> was, well, my grandmother had had the, the kitchen. She had the stove, but she also had another right. stove in the basement. So she would have two right. stoves going. <laughs> so, right. It's all gone week. Oh, <laughs> man. Um, Lieutenant Colonel, you, you wrote an excellent article about China, and we've been discussing China uh, today. And I had uh, uh, General Spaulding on, on the show because he had an excellent book that came out a couple of years ago. And yeah, I've had, I know Gordon Chang, so I was always talking with him. Uh, but people don't understand what China is being, has been doing to this nation. And they have been slowly and surely chipping at us uh, between the Confucius schools, between the buying up of real estate within the United States. Uh, next time you go to Smithfield, you go to the grocery store and you buy Smithfield meat products, you're buying from China. Or you go to Walmart, just about everything you pick up is made in China. You know, they now are getting access to the rare earth metals uh, coming, are being found in Afghanistan. But gee, Crazy, creepy Uncle Joe wants to send everyone over to China to buy the electric cars from China. They have creeped into our lives. They're in our businesses. They are in our institutions. They are in our government. They influence a large number of people that serve in the Senate and the House. When is America going to wake up and understand the rising of China? So I... I think the key concept to really grasp and how China is different than almost every other country that we've ever competed with is, is the fundamental notion of the Chinese Communist Party, which is called civil military fusion. Every, according to the Chinese Communist Party, which, which rules China, everything that is Chinese works for the perpetuation of the power and the interests of the party. The Chinese military, for example, doesn't work for the government of China. It works for the Chinese Communist Party. Under their concept, anything that they touch, they own, and is subservient to them. That includes international staff at the United Nations. It includes every single company and business, whether you're a multinational corporation or a small mom-and-pop shop, um, every aspect, every NGO. They're all there to serve the Chinese government. And so when you do anything with China in any way, shape, or form, you are potentially dealing with the Chinese government's, the, the Chinese Communist Party's vision for how it wants China to be in the world. So, t- you know, easiest example is TikTok. TikTok now gets more views than YouTube. It's the, well, one of the most commonly used apps in America. It is owned by the Chinese. They use it as a tool 
suck up information about Americans and other people all over the world that they store. And then there are two key science initiatives are artificial intelligence and quantum computing, because what they do to hope someday is to weaponize all the information that they collect on Americans uh, so that they can figure – they don't even know how they're going to use it yet. They just know they're going to get information they're going to use it someday. So, for example, many people take DNA tests. These, these are run mm-hmm. by Chinese companies. They're compiling our DNA for, for use later. They don't even know necessarily what they're going to do with it. But they know that nuclear weapons were the, were the most powerful instrument of the last century. Information is the most powerful in, instrument of this century. And they're going to use every technology, every business, they have to do that and that's just one example um so yeah these so yeah anytime you deal with anything related to china potentially you are you are dealing with the chinese communist party so well, people say well we get cheap labor they tell they're giving us these incentives to move our factories over but once you're over there once they learn your process your technology they kick you out and they take over and yeah. any business, well, get, as you said, has to have a member of the Communist Party as part of the board. You know, no business so exists me, without the Communist Party. Yeah, you know, and we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're worried about businesses or business there, but let me give you another example. Black Lives Matter. The, oh. the leadership of Black Lives Matter is educated by a generation of university Marxists. Many of them support it, and they have links back to Communist China. And, the, I mean, we all like black lives. I mean, we all like the notion of, of better civil rights in this country and everything else. But the BLM organization itself is largely well-funded, unaccountable, and, and very much in their fundamental core philosophy in, in sync with the things that, that Chinese Marxists believe. It is. It's blatantly stated on their website that they were Marxist-trained. And they proudly said it publicly. What do you need? Do you need to get a hit over the head with that cast iron fry pan before you finally understand? Yeah, you know, yeah there's a great book about this by a guy named Mike Gonzalez. It's called um, The Title of Books BLM. Um, but, and it's not conspiratorial. It's not tin hat stuff. It's actually real research, real investigative reporting. And what he did is he, looked, he tracked down who runs these organizations, who educates them, who, who funded them, uh, and, he, and he demonstrates that, that it is, that, that BLM itself is fundamentally at its roots a Marxist organization. Yeah, and with the education system, because they've entwined themselves so much uh, into our education system, especially with these Confucius schools that, you know, Trump was trying to shut down, that, you know, they have spies that turn around and say, well, if you start to teach this curriculum, uh, you're going to be paying the price for that. If they have their yeah. students they send over here to the universities, they're followed. And if you don't toe the party line, your family back in China is in danger. They will use every trick in the book to try to destroy our society. And right now they're starting to succeed. So, yeah, and what's really interesting about that, I mean, we all know about Confucius Institute, and, and actually a, a, a fair number have been shut down in, in universities across the United States. But the Chinese are actually very smart about this. 
they, they roll these things out there. And then when the, there's transparency, they get identified, they get pushed back. What they do is, is they fold these things under or they change their names or they reorganize them. Or they find some other way to do the same thing. There's, um, if folks are really interested in this, because it's everywhere, education, uh, the stock market, uh, industry, real estate, you name it. Um, we have a tremendous resource at Heritage. It's called the China Transparency Project. You just Google Chinese Transparency Project and Heritage, you can find it. We have over um, 100 stakeholders around the world that collect all the open source information on what the Chinese are doing across eight different categories, everything from foreign domestic domestic invest, foreign foreign direct investments to their human rights records in China and all the best information that's out there we collate that stuff and then we put on, we also put it on an annual report where we grade the level of transparency one of the really interesting things about this report that shows how really insidious the Chinese are is one of the biggest consumers of open source intelligence on China is the Chinese Communist Party because what they do is they use when these reports are published they use them to find the holes in their in their in the Great Wall of China, and they plug them. So, for example, there was some tremendous work done identifying the size and scope of the Uyghur internment camps, and they did this by the Chinese government data, budget data is classified, but many local district and provincial data wasn't, and they could go in and look at the provincial and district budgets, and they could identify the construction costs, and then use Google Earth to find the buildings and evaluate how big they are and how many people were contained there. As soon as this research was published, all that information disappeared from the World Wide Web. So there's a real cat and mouse going, game going on here, but we're constantly looking for ways to find out what China is doing and expose that, because I actually think that's the most powerful weapon that we have to deal with these guys, is to just let people know what they're doing so people can make intelligent decisions about, do, do I really want my kids on TikTok? Do I really want my kids enrolled in a university where these and enrolling in Chinese programs at universities that are funded by China. And and we can start to make intelligent decisions for ourselves. Can I ask you a question then with regards to, to, to you being a national security this is Vito, um, should we take lightly the uh, the Chinese spy issue with uh, Senator Feinstein and, and uh, with uh, Representative Swalwell as two examples? of how the Chinese have infiltrated the U.S. government? I mean, should we take that lightly, or is that a serious issue? No, no. I mean, it, it, this is part of the Chinese tradecraft. They're constantly look, – and look, I don't know the level of into those okay. congressional offices and the level of damage that was done, but in terms of tradecraft, that, like this is something the Chinese do, yeah, this is exactly the kind of things that we were about. Let me, let me uh, give you another example, which is – the, the number one source of Chinese espionage um, is American students, until very recently, was American students going to China. The Chinese viewed every American student in China as a potential person they could re- recruit, you know, maybe compromise, maybe buy off. And matter the FBI actually did a really good video. You can just find it online at YouTube about the way that the Chinese relentlessly were trying to recruit Chinese students. So if, and, and the more you are a person of power and influence, the more likely the Chinese are going to try to find a way to go to you. One of the things that um, was not the Secretary of Homeland Security, because he's a complete Yahoo, but that the, the, the last Secretary of Homeland Security under Donald Trump, he went to the, New York, to the, the National Governors Association. 
to give them a speech on China. And all the governors are just sitting there and they're nobody cared. And then he put up a slide and he goes, here is how the Chinese Communist Party rates you. And this was intelligence that he had gotten declassified that we had gotten from China, where they had evaluated every single U.S. governor, how friendly they were towards China, and which ones needed to be targeted to gain more influence. Oh, whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is beautiful. Good morning, Vito. I bet they sat Good up. Morning. <laughs> I bet they yeah, sat up and took notice, huh? <laughs> and they're like, give me that list. Where am I on the list? Wow. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> if they're doing that to the governors, don't you think they're doing it to every single elected official on the federal level, every single department yeah. head, every single member of the president's cabinet? And they've got data up the wazoo. That's why I have never done a DNA test, because I don't know if I ever will. Because I don't. They already know enough information about every single service member we have. Right. Yeah. You know, Can I tell you a DNA test story? It has nothing to do with China. Can I tell you? Can I tell you? This is very important. So my son took a DNA test, and he came back to me. and He goes, "Hey, Dad, this is amazing stuff." He goes, "Like I'm, I'm like five percent Jewish and like twenty percent, you know, I I don't know Scottish and you know." And he goes, I'm 50% Italian. And he says, you should take the test. <laughs> and? So I, I don't know if like, math was his, I don't. I just don't think he was a math expert. I, I don't know. But, yeah, no, the, the thing about the DNA, no, sorry. The thing about the DNA test is absolutely true. They intentionally went out, went out and bought DNA test companies, one, because they could make money, but more importantly because it was a great way – to, to amass a global database on individual people and on, and on uh, you know, information from different countries. This is, well, this is why they wanted to sell everybody 5G. If you've got the 5G network, then every bit of information that goes across that network is potentially retrievable by the Chinese. And in China, there is a law that says every bit of information touched by a Chinese company is government property, and the government has free and under, at unfettered access to that information. Oh. Now, that's a scary thought. That is a very scary thought. You know, uh, we've been fighting with the, the administrations saying that we're going to put 5G nationwide. No, no, no. Why don't we build our own? We don't need the Chinese technology, Heiwa, or whatever you pronounce that company's name, to be, gain Huawei. access to our data. How, yeah, you know which one I'm talking about. That one. Um, that, that guy. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, but with this thing that came out with COVID, we're learning more and more about these Chinese research labs. Um, actually, they are basically um, bomb factories, but nothing more. You know, they're still attacking the human body, so they're bombing us with this stuff. They're actually using that DNA to see what works best on what section of the population. So if they're going, say, for somewhere in Africa, they know what they can specifically use to target that population. They're doing the same thing here with us in the United States, trying to see what works. What weapon can they use against us biologically? It's biological warfare at a grand scale. And everyone's just too dumb to recognize this? So here, here's my, my big problem with, with this, uh, and it's, as reflective of other issues, and it goes back to, to this administration. 
I mean, this administration has a very risk-averse way of dealing with China. They talk about competition and cooperation. Well, you know, we will compete with China where we must. We'll cooperate where we can. Well, there's actually no place to cooperate. And, and when it comes to competing, they seem very reluctant to annoy the Chinese in any way. I'll just give you an example. When this story broke about, well, you know, maybe it really did come from a lab, and the last government was actually, the last administration was not lying to us, and maybe you look into this. What did Biden do? He said, well, we're going to. We're gonna, I'm going to ask for a 90-day intel review, which, of course, is nonsense because we already knew what, what intel they had. What was the review did? Well, the review had one purpose, which was to get it off the news cycle. And what happened 90 days later when they came out and said exactly the same thing we knew 90 days before? Biden didn't say anything. He didn't say, okay, we're going to do more. Or, you know, we're going to investigate. He, he, just, he just ignored it because the purpose was never to get to the truth. The purpose was to get it off the news cycle so he wouldn't have to confront China. You know, the, 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 the head of the U.K. just came here, Boris Johnson, to meet with Biden. The number one thing on his agenda when he came here was dealing with China. And the one thing the president refused to talk about was dealing with China. China. Yep. Yep. But who's going to well, challenge still, he's, Biden? He's, who's who's well, going to challenge Biden to this? I mean, we don't, we don't well, have a we press are. corps that, that – yeah, okay – no, no, no. I, I'm serious about this. If you look at China, immigration, COVID, inflation, every major issue that Americans really care about, they're on the opposite side of their president. His polling numbers are underwater and everything. Now, that's, if you think about that, how is that even possible? Here you have a, a press corps which is you know, supporting the president, pundits, Congress leaders, the government, everybody incessantly telling us the president's doing great. And yet all of America knows that these guys are not doing great. Well, how did that happen? It was because we started thinking for ourselves. And I think we, the American people, actually form a firebreak against this stuff. But the, but the thing is, we have to – and this is the one thing they don't want us to do. They don't want us to talk about that. They don't want us to think for ourselves. They want to every time you say, well, we should secure the border. And they say, well, then you're a racist. And people, oh, I really can't talk about this because people think I'm a racist. Or, you know, I'm against critical race theory. Oh, well, you're a racist. Oh, well, I, I really can't raise that in the school board meeting because people will call me a racist. Or uh, foreign policy is too sophisticated for you to understand. Or you don't really understand all this China stuff. When we start ignoring that and having real conversations for ourselves, we become a real force in this country. I think we have in nine months. And I actually think it's, 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 uh, it's a force that's really unstoppable. I mean, you know, people thought the Tea Parties were a movement that change this country, I think the potential that we have now of what Americans can do, if they just stand up and start talking about things that are important to them, is, is, is unbelievable. Well, James, it has been, it, it's been a pleasure having you on. We're down to our last three and a half minutes on the show. And I'm sorry we didn't have you last week, but you're definitely going to be coming back, that's for sure. Well, I appreciate that. Maybe we can, like, exchange recipes. That'd be, like... <laughs> I don't, can I trust you on meatball recipe? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> recipes, you know, can, you, can you give me a, a good super Tuscan? I gotta survive. You know, there are lots of important things to talk about. And then, you know, the world, the world will be there. Oh, you marched with the army, and the army marches on its stomach. Uh, people can find you at heritage.org, where you are the vice 
President of the Catherine and Shelby Coleman Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and the E.W. Richardson Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I said that all in one mouthful. Wow. And that, and that, and that definitely took up three and a half minutes. Thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> take care of yourself. Thank right, you very much, James. All right. Take care. All right, James Carafano, check him out at heritage.org. He's got awesome. some excellent yeah. artists up there. Uh, yeah, and my head is spinning. I didn't realize how much time had just flown by. Wow. Uh, wow. And just, anyway, uh, we're already booking up into next week already. Don't ask me who I booked. I have to keep a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I forget. But uh, we will be back next week. And, uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us, all those that were in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, as well as those who were posting over on Facebook and YouTube. I can't see everything all at once because I'm bouncing between two computers. I'm dizzy enough. I don't need to make myself dizzier. But, Vito, thank you for joining us. You have your show. Pleasure. Mamma Mia, No Sharia on Global Patriot Radio on Mondays at 6 p.m., correct, with your pal Al? That, That is correct, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Well, we're down to our last minute. Um, you have anyone lined up for your show next week already or no? Uh, we have a tentative guest, uh, Andrew Harrod, but uh, we have to confirm that. And he's going to talk about an article he wrote about Afghanistan and through Michael Schuer's eyes. So uh, that'll be a topic on, on Monday, one of the topics on Monday. So um, look forward to, uh, to, to uh, Andrew. And, and thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. What a great guest, I'm telling you. It was just it was fantastic. Oh, uh, thank you for sticking around. And a sweet little hello to Sweet Sue, who's been sitting there in yeah. the studio listening in. Sweet Sue. Um, and also prayers for G-Ski. Uh, G-Ski rocks. People know uh, he's not doing too well. So please send your prayers and thoughts out to him and his family. Uh, that's all we got for now. Just a reminder, go to my website, the name of the show, Southern Sense, put it dash in the middle. Check out Patriot Foods. They're giving you $100 off a three-month supply uh, and if we're going to be seeing critical shortages of food and other things in the stores, stock up, folks. Stock up. And like I said, I do eat it. So just go to southern-sense.com and click on My Patriot Food. Uh, but that's all I got for now, folks. Uh, so I say until then, good night and God bless. And Ciao. have a great weekend. Be safe out there. It's nuts. Don't let the nuts get you. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) until then, good night.